8. Homicide and Overview It isn't right to gloat over the dead. Homer's Odyssey Chapter Overview A. The Actus Rise, Killing B. The Mens Rea, Preview of Things to Come C. The Circumstance, Defining a Human Being D. Suicide versus Homicide E. The Closer, Procedural Issues and Study Dip Levinson's Picks The most popular crime in law school is homicide. I can almost guarantee you that someone will die on your criminal law examination. Don't let it be you. Homicide is the one crime you must know well to excel in. The Typical Criminal Law Course Professors love to teach homicide because it challenges students to understand the relationship between modern homicide statutes and common law homicide crimes. Moreover, it is one of the few crimes in which there are gradations of the crime. In other words, not all killings are treated the same. There are murders and manslaughters and accidental killings. Even at common law, there were distinctions made in the type of killing even though early on all homicides were punishable by death. Now, the distinctions make more difference than ever. While the range of sentence varies by jurisdiction, murder can typically carry a lengthy sentence of 15 years to life in prison. By contrast, manslaughter may result in only a few years of imprisonment. Thus, it is critical to understand the differences in the different kinds of homicide. Like 117 other crimes. Homicide is composed of several elements. These elements are as follows. Actus rias equals killing. Mens rea equals depends on the grade of homicide. Circumstances equals another human being. Result equals death. This chapter takes a close look at all these elements, except for mens rea. Because the defendant's mens rea tends to define the type of homicide charged. That issue is dealt with separately in the chapters on murder, manslaughter, negligent homicide, and felony murder. Before we begin, keep in mind that different jurisdictions define their levels of homicide differently. We study the common terms and concepts all these jurisdictions share. However, to keep you on track, here are some charts of the major jurisdictions and most common approaches. California Penal Code $189.192 Level of Homicide Mens Rea Requirement First-degree murder premeditation or occurring during the commission of certain felonies. Second-degree murder all other killings with malice. Voluntary manslaughter heat of passion killings. Involuntary manslaughter killings during an unlawful act not constituting a felony or during a lawful act performed with gross negligence. Vehicular manslaughter killings committed with gross negligence or during unlawful operation of a motor vehicle. New York Penal Code $125.25.25.27 Level of Homicide Mens Rea Requirement First-degree murder intentionally committed against certain types of victims or while defendant in custody or during escape. Second-degree murder intent to kill or felony murder. First-degree manslaughter intent to cause serious bodily injury or intent to kill because of extreme emotional disturbance. Second-degree manslaughter reckless or intentionally aiding suicide. Negligent homicide criminal negligence. A. The actus rise, killing. 
The actus reus for homicide is very simple. It is to kill. Let your imagination run wild. There are so many ways to kill another human being. The defendant can stab, shoot, poison, beat, smother, bleed, electrocute. You get the idea, the victim. The law doesn't really care which method the defendant chooses if it causes the victim's death. It is also possible to cause another person's death by an omission. For example, assume that a mother allows her child to starve to death. In the situation, the actus reus for the murder is the failure to feed the child when there was a duty to do so. Remember, however, that there must be a duty by the defendant to provide for or help the victim. As we reviewed in Chapter 3, there is generally no duty to help another person, even if he is faced with extreme harm. However, when there is such a duty, failure to fulfill may satisfy the actus reus requirement for homicide. A slightly tougher question that arises is when does death occur? It might surprise you to learn that there is no one answer to this question. It depends on the jurisdiction. Each jurisdiction gets to define when life ends. In most jurisdictions, death occurs when the brain ceases to function. See, for example, Barbara v. Superior Court, 147 California App, 3D 1006, 1983, People v. Yulo, 63 N.Y.D. 341. 1984. A minority of jurisdictions define death as the moment the victim's heart stops. One last issue can arise with regard to the actus reus for a homicide. In some jurisdictions, prosecutors need to worry about the year and a day rule. Under this common law rule, death must occur within a year and a day of the defendant's acts to constitute a killing. Therefore, imagine that the defendant strangles the victim. But instead of drying, the victim lies in a coma for more than a year. Under the common law rule, the defendant could not be charged with homicide. Instead, the defendant might be charged with attempted murder. Today, most jurisdictions have abandoned the year and a day requirement. However, it remains in force in federal courts. The actus reus requirement is not usually the difficult issue on an exam, but it is important not to overlook it. Take a look at the next question to see how an actus reus issue may arise on a homicide problem. Question 1. Gang Killings Punchy and Mickey are rival gang members. One day, Punchy hears a fellow gang member, Jimmy, say that he plans to kill Mickey at his first opportunity because he heard Mickey was planning to attack him. Punchy knows it's not true but doesn't say anything to Jimmy. As a result, the next day Jimmy goes out and stabs Mickey. If Punchy is charged with murder for Mickey's death, he is a guilty because he knew that Jimmy was going to kill Mickey. b guilty because he could have prevented Mickey's stabbing. c guilty because he is in the same gang as Jimmy. d not guilty. Analysis At first glance, this question is a little tricky. Your gut instincts may be telling you that Punchy should be guilty of something but you must force yourself to evaluate the question to determine whether Punchy had the essential elements to be guilty of murder. The first element is actus reus. Did Punchy fulfill the actus reus requirement for the crime? Although Punchy may have been delighted that someone was going to kill Mickey, Punchy is only guilty if he did something, 
or fail to do something he had a duty to do, that helped cause Mickey's death. There is no positive act by Punchy that caused Mickey's death. Punchy never encouraged Jimmy and he never physically helped him. There is also no actus rise by omission in this situation. You are given no facts to indicate that Punchy had a duty to warn Mickey or let Jimmy know that it wasn't true that Mickey was going to attack him. Therefore, Punchy's failure to warn Mickey is not an actus rise for the crime. Thus, as we see when we evaluate the answer options, Punchy may not be a good guy, but he is unlikely to be legally responsible for Mickey's death. By the way, in evaluating this problem, we are assuming that there are no separate anti-gang laws that would impose criminal responsibility and that there was no conspiracy among the gang members to have Mickey killed. Rather, we are evaluating the question from the perspective of whether Punchy has done an act that directly caused Mickey's death. Many students jump at A because their personal morality tells them that Punchy should have done something to stop the killing. However, incorrectly assumes that Punchy is guilty so long as he has the intent for the victim to die. It completely ignores the fact that Punchy hasn't done anything that caused Mickey's death. For similar reasons, B is an incorrect answer. Punchy was under no duty to prevent the stabbing. A full understanding of C requires that you learn about co-conspirator and accomplice liability. See chapters 14 and 15 infra, however, it too is incorrect. Generally, mere membership in a gang, without a specific anti-gang statute, is insufficient to make gang members criminally responsible for each other's criminal acts. Therefore, D is the correct answer. Punchy lacked the actus rise for McKay's murder. B. The mens rea, preview of things to come. As detailed in the next chapters, most jurisdictions label the type of homicide committed by the defendant by the level of intent the defendant had at the time of the killing. Thus, purposeful killings are considered to be murder, whereas negligent killings are usually classified as manslaughter or negligent homicide. The key common law mens rea terms to understand in homicide law are malice premeditation, provocation, and criminal negligence. As with other terms derived from common law, it is important to keep in mind that these terms may have legal meanings that are quite different from their ordinary meanings. For example, murder is legally defined as a killing committed with malice aforethought. The term aforethought is actually superfluous. All it suggests is that the defendant must have given some thought to the harm he would cause another before he killed. However, the key word in the phrase is malice. Malice refers to killings committed with callous disregard of human life. It may be proven by direct or circumstantial evidence. It also encapsulates several different types of killings. The term malice can describe any of the following mindsets of the defendant. Intent to kill the victim. Intent to cause grave bodily harm to the victim. Or gross indifference to the risk of death or great bodily harm to the victim. Moreover, as discussed in Chapter 11, under the felony murder doctrine, malice is artificially provided by the fact that the death occurred during the commission of a felony. The confusing thing about murder law is that judges and statutes often use a variety of terms to describe the malice required for murder. For example, at common law, a synonym for malice was a killing committed with an abandoned and malignant heart. Some statutes still retain this language. 
or they refer to a depraved heart killing. All of these phrases are attempts to describe a heinous and callous killing. Premeditation is also a term of art associated with homicide law. As discussed in Chapter 9, most jurisdictions classify premeditated killing as the most serious type of homicide, that is, first-degree murder. Yet, there is no one accepted definition of premeditation. In some jurisdictions, such as federal court, premeditation only refers to a purposeful killing. No particular amount of time is needed to form the purpose to kill, nor do the circumstances of the killing need to suggest that the defendant had a well-thought-out plan to kill. Yet, other jurisdictions, such as California, have more detailed requirements for premeditation. Those courts are looking for a preconceived plan that demonstrates by manner, motive, or planning that the defendant goalie formed the intent to kill. Provocation is another legal term used in discussing a particular type of homicide, namely manslaughters committed in the heat of passion. Chapter 10 Reviews in Detail These Types of Homicides Yet, as a preview, it is important to understand that provocation is a doctrine that relates to an intentional killing that is not formed in a cool, deliberative process like premeditation. Rather, it is a hot-headed reaction to acts that cause the defendant to kill. If that provocation was legally sufficient, the defendant's intentional killing is not seen as it ordinarily would be, that is, as a murder. Rather, the defendant may be guilty of a lower level of homicide, such as voluntary manslaughter. Finally, there is a category of negligent homicides, sometimes known as involuntary manslaughter, that includes accidental killings for which the defendant is still morally culpable. Recall that the minimum standard for criminal culpability is ordinarily recklessness. Yet, because the harm is so serious in a homicide case, the law dips down to the level of criminal or gross negligence. As discussed in Chapter 10, there are some accidental deaths that are so preventable and troublesome that we hold the perpetrator criminally responsible. You will be tested in more detail on these concepts in later chapters. Those chapters also focus on the model penal code approach that does not distinguish between degrees of murder and uses model penal code culpability terminology to distinguish among murder, manslaughter, and negligent homicide. Model Penal Code $110 at SEC and non-degree states. Level of Homicide Mens Rea Requirement Murder purposely, knowingly, or acting with grossly reckless regard for human life. Manslaughter recklessly or under extreme emotional disturbance. Negligent homicide negligently. Causing or aiding suicide purposely with force, duress, or deception. Later chapters distinguish in detail the common law approach from the model penal code approach. However, for purposes of this introductory chapter, see if you have the basic common law concept of malice and premeditation under your belt. Question 2. The Mad Scientist. Marcus lives next to Jerry, the neighborhood mad scientist. Jerry is always fooling around with different experiments and creating obnoxious odors and noises in the neighborhood. Marcus is determined to drive Jerry out of the neighborhood so that everyone else can be rid of his disturbances. Therefore, he wanders over to Jerry's yard when Jerry is not home and mixes up his own surprise for Jerry. In the container that is marked, apostrophe H2F4 water, 
Marcus substitutes nitroglycerin, an extremely explosive compound. Sure enough, Terry comes home from his job as a convenience store clerk and starts again with his home experiments. Soon thereafter, the neighbors hear a loud boom. Not knowing about the switch, Terry has accidentally mixed the nitroglycerin into his other compound and caused a huge explosion that kills him instantly. Marcus is charged with Jerry's death. A. Marcus is guilty of murder because he negligently caused Jerry's death. B. Marcus is guilty of murder because he acted with callous disregard for Jerry's life. C. Marcus is not guilty of murder because he did not premeditate Jerry's killing. D. Marcus is not guilty of murder because he did not use a dangerous weapon to kill Jerry. Analysis. Don't forget, this is just a preview of some of the issues covered in chapters 9 and 10. However, it is never too early to develop your instincts as to the meaning of common law terms associated with homicide. This question tests your understanding of several of the basic terms, including premeditation, criminal negligence, and malice. Let's start with A. Even without a detailed understanding of homicide law, the one thing you need to be very clear on is that a negligent killing will not be murder. By definition, murder requires malice. Negligence means that the defendant did not consider the risk that he would hurt someone, but a reasonable person would have. If as is the case here, the defendant actually knows the risks of his actions and takes those risks anyway, he has not acted negligently. More likely, he has acted intentionally or recklessly. While either of those intents may be sufficient for malice, negligence is not. Therefore, as an incorrect answer. Skip B for a moment and move to C. They say that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. That is particularly true in law school. While it is true that certain types of murder, namely, first-degree murder, require premeditation, other types of murder do not require premeditation. They only require malice. Therefore, C is wrong for two reasons. First, it suggests that premeditation is always required for any type of murder conviction. That is incorrect. Second, it suggests that Marcus's actions would not be sufficient for premeditation. They might be. Remember what Marcus did. He had a plan. He snuck into his neighbor's yard and intentionally put nitroglycerin in the water container. He had a motive to kill he found his neighbor to be obnoxious. And, he chose a manner of killing that had a high possibility of success. Thus, he may very well have acted with premeditation. In that case, Marcus would be guilty of murder and C is factually wrong as well. Now, return to B as an answer. Some students would skip over this answer because it doesn't have the magic word malice in it. Yet, your professor will often do what the courts do. He will substitute one of the common phrases used to describe malice to see if you understand what the underlying mens rea standard is for murder. As we discussed, malice may refer to a callous disregard for human life. It is not always a premeditated or intentional killing. At minimum, Marcus acted in callous disregard of Jerry's life. This is a form of malice and Marcus could therefore be guilty of murder. Therefore, B is the correct answer. How about D? D is the red herring dot harking back to our discussion on Actus Rise, 
There are many ways a defendant can kill another person. Sometimes, the defendant uses a dangerous weapon, such as a gun or knife. However, murder does not require that a dangerous weapon be used so long as the instrument the defendant chooses to kill gets the job done. It is not that unusual. Therefore, to have killings committed with everyday items such as frying pans or baseball bats. D is wrong because it suggests that unless a killing is done with a weapon that is by its nature dangerous, it is not murder.1. C. The circumstance, defining a human being. Not every killing, no matter how heinous, is a homicide. Rather, homicide requires the killing of another human being. Thus, if your despicable neighbor viciously kills your favorite pet, Fido, you might be very upset but you couldn't press charges for homicide. Pet killings are not the real problem in the area. Rather, the question sometimes arises as to whether a fetus should be considered a human being. For example, what if a man kicks a pregnant woman and the woman survives, but the fetus dies? Is the man guilty of homicide? Or what if a pregnant woman intentionally does not receive needed medical care and thereby causes the death of her own fetus? Can she be charged with homicide? Your first instinct might be that a fetus cannot be considered a human being because abortion is permitted in this country. However, a fetus may be a human being for one purpose under the law, but not for another. Thus, a jurisdiction may decide that outside of the abortion scenario a fetus is a human being. Sekiller v. Superior Court, 470p.d617, California 1970, fetus not considered a human being unless the laws of the jurisdiction expressly state otherwise. In designating a fetus as a human being, the law need not require that the prosecution prove the fetus was viable. See People v. Davis. 872p.d591, California 1994, viability not element of California fetal murder, fetus only need be beyond the eight-week embryonic stage. Moreover, it need not be proven that the fetus died inside the mother as a result of the defendant's acts. Injuries inflicted upon a child while in the mother's womb may be the basis for a homicide charge if the child is then born alive but subsequently dies as a result of the inutero injuries. Williams v. State, 561 A.D. 216, M.D. 1989. Ordinarily, once the law has designated someone as a human being, it doesn't matter if the victim is old, young, are related to the defendant. However, 1. Don't get ripped up here by the dangerous instrumentality doctrine that we discuss in Chapter 10. Some jurisdictions use special terms to describe certain types of homicides. For example, the killing of a fetus may be referred to as feticide. Similarly, killing a young child is often called infanticide and killing one's parents is referred to as patricide. All these are simply examples of homicide. Question 3. The Adams Family Natasha and Gomez Adams have been married for several years. However, their relationship has not been a happy one. They frequently fight with each other. One day, Natasha tells Gomez she is four months pregnant. Gomez has just lost his job and isn't thrilled with the news. He tells her to have an abortion. 
but Natasha refuses. Gomez then kicks Natasha in the abdomen. Natasha agrees she will get an abortion, but before she does, the fetus dies from the injuries inflicted by Gomez. In their jurisdiction, a fetus is considered a human being once it is beyond the eight-week embryonic stage. Can Gomez be charged with murder? A. No, because the fetus was going to be aborted anyway. B. No, because there was no proof that the fetus was viable. C. Yes, because a fetus is always considered a human being under the law. D. Yes, because the fetus was beyond the eight-week embryonic stage. E. No, because the fetus was never born alive. Analysis. First, a warning. Criminal law hypotheticals are often very troubling, especially in the homicide area. The questions frequently include scenarios in which people do terrible things to each other, including to children. It is important to remain objective and analytical when you evaluate a question. Just like in other areas, analyze each response to determine whether it correctly states the legal standard and applies it to the facts of that question. In this question, the key issue is whether the fetus was legally considered a human being at the time of Gomez's kick. Don't forget, this is controlled by state law. In this state, the law defines any fetus beyond the eight-week embryonic stage as a human being, regardless of whether the mother could have legally aborted the fetus. Therefore, it is wrong. The fact that the mother could have legally aborted the fetus does not mean that another person, including the father, has the right to terminate the fetus's life. B is also wrong because the law does not require proof that the fetus be viable to be considered a human being for purposes of the murder law. As in People v. Davis, 872p.d 591, California 1994, the legislature can define the fetus as a human being even before the fetus is viable. C looks good at first but it has one of the words that are always dangerous in a multiple choice exam. It states that a fetus is always considered a human being under the law. As we have seen, that is not always true. It depends on the jurisdiction. Beware of choosing answers that are too far sweeping or absolute. D is the better answer because it fits the definition of a human being in this jurisdiction. Once the fetus is beyond 8 weeks, Regardless of whether it is viable, it is considered a human being. In this jurisdiction, it doesn't matter whether the fetus was ever born alive. Therefore, E is a wrong answer. D. Suicide versus Homicide One issue that can arise in homicide law is whether it is a crime to help another person take his life. The person who kills himself has committed suicide. Even if there is a law against suicide that person is not around to prosecute. Therefore, the authorities often look to prosecute the person you may have assisted in the suicide. Assisting a suicide is still illegal in many jurisdictions. The jurisdictions that prohibit it may classify the crime as assisting a suicide or simply refer to it as a form of homicide. Consent is not a defense to the crime of homicide. Therefore, the defendant cannot claim that he was free to take the victim's life. In recent years, the most famous defendant charged with illegally assisting a suicide is Dr. Kevorkian. See People v. Kevorkian, 205 MIT. App. 180. 1994.
At his patient's request, Dr. Kevorkian would use a number of methods, including carbon monoxide poisoning, to help end the terminally ill patient's lives. Even though he was arguably following the patient's wishes, he was still guilty of homicide and or assisted suicide. See Chapter 7. Subsection D. In the last 15 years, there have been legal challenges to state laws prohibiting physician-assisted suicide. However, the Supreme Court has refused to strike down these laws. Rather, in Washington v. Glucksburg, 521 U.S. 702, 1997, the court held that it is up to the states to decide whether physician-assisted suicides will be permitted. Where it is permitted, there are typically many procedural protections to ensure that the patient is indeterminately ill and consents to the procedure. Question 4. Goodbye, dear friend. Harry and Sally have been the best of friends for years. Tragically, Harry has developed a fatal disease and has been told by his doctors that he has only six months to live. He expects that his condition will continue to deteriorate during that six months and that when he finally dies, he will be incapable of caring for himself and in constant pain. Sally cannot stand to see her friends suffering. Therefore, she agrees to help with Harry's plan to end it all. At Harry's request, she makes him a chocolate milkshake, his favorite, that is spiked with enough sedatives to kill him. Sally leaves it for Harry near his bed. Harry thanks her, says goodbye, and drinks the shake. He dies peacefully in five minutes. Assuming the law in that jurisdiction prohibits assisting a suicide, which of the following is true? A. Harry may be charged with suicide and Sally with assisting his suicide. B. Neither Harry nor Sally may be charged with suicide because Harry voluntarily decided to end his life. C. Harry may have been guilty of suicide, but Sally is not guilty of a crime because she did not administer the poison to Harry. D. Sally is not guilty because Harry was guaranteed the constitutional right to end his life in a dignified manner. E. Sally may be charged with assisting Harry's suicide. Analysis. Be careful with problems like this not to lapse in deciding what you think the law should be. Rather, you must answer the question according to the state of the law now. At first, a looks like a good answer until you pause and realize that Harry is not around to be charged with any crime. Even if he committed suicide, he cannot be charged because he is deceased. Therefore, A is only half right. By contrast, B is all wrong. Unless the problem tells you so, you cannot assume that it is legal to help someone voluntarily end his life. Don't forget, consent is not a defense to homicide. C is a little trickier. You will understand this question better after we discuss accomplice liability in Chapter 14. However, it is important in the meantime to understand that any act that helps another commit a crime, if it is done with a purpose for the crime to be completed, will also make the person who helps guilty of the crime. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether Sally physically administered any poison to Harry. She purposely helped him end his life and therefore may be guilty of assisting a suicide. D is wrong because the Supreme Court has never held that there is a constitutional right to end one's life. See Washington v. Glucksburg, Supra. Therefore, 
Sally may be charged with assisting a suicide and you would be the correct answer, unless that jurisdiction has specifically held that offering poison is insufficient to help another person with suicide. E. The closer, procedural issues and study dip. You might be wondering, why does my professor spend so much time on homicide law and not as much time on other crimes? In fact, in some criminal law courses, the only crime covered during the semester is homicide. There are at least two reasons why your professor may focus so much on homicide law. First, it is an area of criminal law in which the offenses are graded. In other words, not all homicides are treated the same under the law, nor do they all have the same legal requirements. Rather, there are more serious and less serious homicides. You will learn what factors are used to determine which homicides are considered the most serious and punished accordingly. Second, homicide law is an excellent example of an area where modern statutes often still rely on common law terms to delineate the type of homicide. Thus, a typical murder statute may simply state that a killing with malice is murder. In order to understand malice, the professor can take you through the wonderful world of common law murder. You also need to keep in mind some of the procedural aspects of homicide law. As you learn in later chapters, there may be several different theories by which a defendant is guilty of a homicide. For example, a defendant who kills a victim during a bank robbery may be guilty of murder either because he acted with malice or because the law artificially assigns him as acting with malice because the death occurred during the commission of a felony. Prosecutors may charge a defendant in the alternative with murder and felony murder. Likewise, the court may give alternative jury instructions by which a jury may find the defendant guilty of murder. In analyzing homicide problems, I suggest that you work methodically through the various levels of homicide, from most serious to least serious. By doing so, you will train yourself to consider all arguments in favor and against each level. If you just jump at the type of homicide you first think the situation describes, you will often miss arguments in favor of other levels of homicide. Finally, keep in mind that all the legal standards you will study are attempts by the court to guide the discretion of the jury. In real life, jurors are free to disregard the formal legal distinctions and vote by instinct. Thus, you will likely read cases in your criminal law class in which the jury's verdict does not comport with your academic understanding of how the law should work. However, you should still discipline yourself to analyze the case correctly and then try to understand why the jury may have rejected the formal legal principles. Question 5. The Blundering Kidnapper Charles decides to kidnap his high school teacher and hold her for ransom. The victim was always his favorite teacher. In fact, she is everyone's favorite teacher, so he is fairly sure he can secure a high ransom for her return. Charles intends to return the teacher unharmed as soon as he gets the money he needs to cover some drug debts. A week after the kidnapping, the police find the victim dead in the trunk of Charles's car. In charging Charles with homicide, a. Prosecutors cannot charge Charles with murder because it is clear he did not act with malice. B. Prosecutors can charge Charles with murder and manslaughter for the death of his teacher. C. Prosecutors can charge Charles with murder if there is malice or felony murder. D. Prosecutors cannot charge Charles with murder because he did not premeditate his victim's death. Analysis 
This problem is a good preview of the upcoming chapters. Once again, don't presume your everyday understanding of keywords will get you through a homicide problem. You must know exactly what terms like malice, premeditation, murder, and manslaughter mean. Also, you need to keep in mind that the prosecutor may use alternative theories to convict a defendant. If you picked A, it is probably because you misunderstand the principle of malice. As discussed in this chapter, a defendant can act with malice even though he adores his victim. Malice is a term of art that refers to intentional killings or those done with a certain level of recklessness. A, therefore, is a wrong answer because it is absolutely possible that Charles acted with malice. B is wrong for procedural reasons. A defendant is not charged with both murder and manslaughter. Rather, a defendant will typically be charged with a more serious offense and the defense may ask for jury instructions on a lesser included offense. Thus, Charles would be charged with murder. However, if the evidence during trial could support a manslaughter instruction, the court would be free to instruct the jury on the lesser included defense of manslaughter. If you pick D, it is because you assume you know a lot more about criminal law than you probably do at this point. Murder does not necessarily require premeditation. Only certain types of murders, that is first-degree murder, require premeditation. Otherwise, all that murder requires is malice. Accordingly, D is wrong because it incorrectly states the law of murder. C is the correct answer. Prosecutors can charge Charles with murder and use various theories, including felony murder, to argue why he is guilty. In this scenario, Charles may be guilty of murder if he acted with reckless indifference to his victim's life, or if her death occurred during the commission of the felony of kidnapping. As you can see, it is time to jump into the details. Accordingly, the next three chapters methodically walk you through the law of murder, manslaughter, felony murder, and misdemeanor manslaughter. Levinson's Picks 1. Gang Killings D. 2. The Mad Scientist B. 3. The Adams Family D. 4. Goodbye, Dear Friend E. 5. The Blundering Kidnapper C. 9. Homicide, Murder. Murder, she wrote. Chapter Overview A. Definition of Malice B. Types of Malice. 1. Intent to Kill. 2. Intent to cause serious bodily harm. 3. Extreme recklessness. C. First degree murder. 1. Premeditated and deliberate murder. 2. Murder committed by specific statutory means. 3. First degree felony murder. D. Second degree murder. 1. Catch-o murder. 2. Second degree felony murder. E. Model Penal Code Approach to Murder F. The Closer, Delighted Afterthoughts Levinson's Picks From the previous chapter, you know that homicides are broken down into different types of killings. The more serious homicides are referred to as murder, the less serious receive the label of manslaughter or negligee. Gent Homicide While the victim is equally dead in either case, the defendant's culpability may differ. Jurisdictions are free to choose those factors by which they will distinguish categories of homicide. 
The one feature that classically distinguishes murder from other types of killings is malice. In fact, murder is 131. Typically defined as the unlawful killing of another human being with malice aforethought. That sounds like an easy rule, but the devil is in the details. Malice has a myriad of definitions. At common law, phrases like depraved heart or malignant heart were used to describe a defendant who acted with malice. Although graphic, these terms do little to help the modern criminal law practitioner understand what malice really means. Therefore, it is important to get beyond the common law labels to a deeper understanding of the requirement of malice. This chapter takes you down the path of murder to a clearer understanding of today's concept of malice. As you go through this chapter, keep in mind that words that are used in non-legal discussions can have distinct meanings in homicide law. For example, as this chapter discusses, not every defendant who intentionally kills acts with premeditation. Intent to kill and premeditation are separate legal standards. Most of this chapter focuses on common law approaches to homicide. However, Section E focuses on the Model Penal Code approach. The Model Penal Code does not recognize degrees of murder. Rather, as set forth in the chart in Chapter 8, the Model Penal Code recognizes all killings that are done purposely, knowingly, or with extreme indifference to human life as murder. See Model Penal Code $110. Differences in culpability can be addressed by the court at sentencing. This chapter also uses the Model Penal Code culpability vocabulary you learned in Chapter 3 to help you understand the meaning of some common law terms. For example, one modern definition of malice includes a type of recklessness, a term we studied at length in that earlier chapter. Finally, felony murder is an important topic when discussing homicide law. It is an alternative approach for holding defendants responsible for murder without having to prove malice. Because of its scope, felony murder has earned its own chapter in this book, Chapter 11. This initial chapter on murder law is devoted instead to approaches to proving murder that do not rely on felony murder principles. A. Definition of Malice As we've been discussing, murder is ordinarily defined as a killing done with malice. The $64,000 question is, what is malice? Is it different from malice aforethought? Exactly what does a depraved and malignant heart look like and how are we supposed to know, since we chose law school instead of medical school? Don't be thrown off by the colorful language used to describe malice. The language is a remnant of the past repeated attempts by courts to describe the type of mindset of a person who intentionally or callously causes the death of another person. In fact, the common law language is often awkward and redundant. In truth, malice aforethought and malice mean the exact same thing. Likewise, depraved heart means the same as malignant and uncaring heart. The words are a search for a way to describe the mindset of someone who uncaringly or intentionally kills another person. Before we try to define malice in more detail, let's start by describing what it is not. Malice is not what you might have thought before you went to law school. Malice does not mean that the defendant killed the victim out of spite or because she harbored ill will toward the victim. A person may murder her best friend by reckless behavior. An adoring and dedicated spouse might murder his ailing wife because she is severely ill and wants to be freed from her misery. 
In other words, the motive for a murder need not be malevolent. Malice generally focuses on the intent of the defendant. In most jurisdictions, malice can be demonstrated by any of the following. 1. Intent to kill. 2. Intent to cause serious, grave, bodily harm. 3. Callous or wanton disregard for human life, that is, gross recklessness. 4. Killing during the commission of a felony, felony murder 1. B. Types of malice. 1. Intent to kill. The first type of malice, intent to kill, is known as express malice and is fairly self-explanatory. Your job is to use the evidence regarding the killing to determine whether the defendant purposely killed her victim. You can use circumstantial or direct evidence to make that determination. Direct evidence is rare in a homicide case. It would entail an eyewitness's account, the defendant's admission that she committed the killing, or a videotape of the incident. More frequently, prosecutors must make their case from circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is all the other evidence regarding the killing that is used to prove the case. Contrary to what you might have seen on television or in the movies, circumstantial evidence is every bit as valuable as direct evidence. Most cases are proved with circumstantial evidence. In order to prove that the defendant had intent to kill, the prosecution can rely on circumstantial evidence of the defendant's motive to kill, her use of a dangerous weapon to commit the killing and her bragging about the killing after she committed it. 1. Discussed in detail in Chapter 11. The best way to understand each type of malice is to see it in action. Therefore, try the following problem and how it defines malice. Question 1. Bad sport. Andre hates to lose. For the last five years, he has enjoyed the spotlight as the world's greatest chess player and as a wonderful humanitarian and philanthropist. However, there is a new chess competitor coming up the ranks quickly. The newest kid is Nikolai. He is now the darling of the chess world and he has been bragging that he is better and smarter than Andre. Andre tells a friend that Nikolai's days are numbered. The next day, he shoots Nikolai in the head during a tournament. As Nikolai collapses, Andre simply smiles and says, checkmate, game over. Andre is charged with murder. He claims that he did not act with malice. He is likely to be found a. Guilty because he had the intent to kill Nikolai. b. Guilty because he had a motive to kill Nikolai. c. Not guilty because the prosecution's case is based on circumstantial evidence. d. Not guilty because Andre is a man with a good and generous heart. Analysis. Andre has been charged with murder. Therefore, the government must prove malice. The first way to prove malice is by proving intent to kill. As an exercise, look at this problem to determine what evidence, direct or circumstantial, might be used to prove an intent to kill. It seems obvious, doesn't it? Shooting another person in the head is a darn good way of demonstrating intent to kill. Moreover, we know in this problem that Andre had a strong motive for killing Nikolai. Although the prosecution is not required to prove motive to prove a homicide case, motive is often helpful in proving the defendant's intent to kill. 
Even Andre's words after the shooting tend to show that he killed Nikola intentionally, and not by accident. With this analysis of the problem in mind, let's look at the options for answers. A seems right on the nose, but we can't be sure until we evaluate the other possible answers. Start with B. B is a wrong answer because it only focuses on Andre's motive. While motive may be used to prove intent to kill, the key issue in deciding whether Andre acted with malice is whether he had intent to kill. Therefore, A is a better answer than B, even though motive would be one factor in deciding whether Andre had intent to kill. C is wrong because it suggests that the prosecution cannot succeed in proving malice with circumstantial evidence. As we know, that is a popular, but false, perception of the law. Circumstantial evidence can be sufficient to prove malice, as this question demonstrates. Although Andre never states, I intend to kill you, his actions and words clearly demonstrate that intent. If you pick D, it is probably because you are stuck on an old common law definition of malice as a killing done with a depraved and malignant heart. However, that historical definition is misleading. Even a person who is generally good and generous can act with malice if he intentionally kills another person. Let's assume that Andre is nice to everyone else in the world. If he intentionally killed Nikola, he has acted with malice. Therefore, D is a wrong answer. The best answer turns out to be A. Sometimes the most straightforward answer is the correct answer for multiple choice tests. If you know your first definition of malice, that is, intend to kill, this problem should have given you little trouble. 2. Intend to cause serious bodily harm. A second way to prove malice is to prove that the defendant acted with intent to cause serious, or grave, bodily harm to the victim. While the defendant may not have intended to kill the victim, the defendant intended to injure the victim in a manner that could easily lead to the victim's death. Consider, for example, a situation in which the defendant shoots an arrow at the victim's shoulder. The defendant doesn't intend to kill the victim, only to incapacitate her. As it turns out, the defendant is not a great shot and the arrow goes straight into the victim's heart. For purposes of murder law, the defendant has acted with malice even though he did not intend to kill the victim. It is sufficient if he intended to cause serious bodily harm. Test your understanding of this second type of malice with the following question. Question 2. The Enforcer. Bruno works as a collector for the local mafia. He has been given the assignment to collect on a loan made to Mr. Brando. Unfortunately for Brando, he doesn't have the cash that Bruno wants. As a result, Bruno slams Brando against a wall, gives Brando a few strong punches to the gut, and then walks away while saying, Next time, you'll remember to pay on time. Brando staggers home. A few days? Later, he dies of a ruptured spleen caused by Bruno's blows. Is Bruno guilty? Of murder? A. No, because he never intended to kill Brando, as evidenced by the fact that Bruno told Brando that he would be collecting from him in the future. B. No, because a punch to the stomach is not necessarily a fatal blow. C. No, because the killing was not premeditated. D. Yes, because he acted with malice. E. Yes, because he intended to kill Brando. 
analysis. You'll be fine with this question so long as you remember that there is more than one way to prove malice. Prosecutors are not required to prove that the defendant intended to kill. Rather, it is sufficient to prove that the defendant intended to cause serious bodily harm. It sounds like the most complete answer, but it is actually wrong. While Bruno didn't intend to kill, he may still be guilty of murder. As long as Bruno intended to cause serious bodily harm, he acted with malice. For a similar array of sons, B is also a wrong answer. B suggests that unless Bruno wanted his blow to be fatal, he cannot be guilty of murder. In fact, that is not true. Malice includes situations in which the defendant only intends to harm his victim, but the victim dies instead. As for C, we will learn about premeditation as it relates to first-degree murder. However, it is not a basic requirement for all murders. Rather, a defendant may act with malice even if he did not plan in advance to kill the victim. It is enough if the defendant intended to gravely harm the victim or was callously indifferent to the fact that he might severely injure the victim. Skip to for a moment and move to E. At first, E seems correct because if Bruno intended to kill Brando, he would be guilty of murder. However, the answer is wrong because it doesn't reflect the facts as stated in the question. We know that Bruno did not intend to kill Brando because he believes there will be a next time when Brando will have to pay. You need to pick the answer that not only reflects a correct statement of the law, but also accurately reflects the facts of the question. D is the right answer. Bruno has acted with implied malice because even though he did not intend to kill Brando, he still intended to cause serious bodily injury. That intent is enough to prove malice and, therefore, murder. 3. Extreme Recklessness There is yet another state of mind that qualifies as malice under murder law. At common law, phrases like depraved heart and abandoned and malignant heart were used to describe a category of malice. It is the state of mind of a defendant who demonstrates extreme indifference to the value of human life. In some jurisdictions, this type of extreme recklessness is referred to as gross recklessness. In other jurisdictions, the term implied malice is used for this type of malice. To demonstrate that a defendant acted with extreme recklessness, the prosecution must show two things. The defendant realized that her conduct posed a risk to human life. The defendant's recklessness was particularly extreme or gross. A simple example would be a defendant who drives his car down a crowded sidewalk. The defendant may not intend to kill or even seriously injure the pedestrians but he is certainly showing an extreme disregard for human life. Here are a couple of problems that provide more examples of this type of malice and murder. Question 3. For bad dog. Brian owns a pit bull named Killer. Brian received Killer as a gift from his parents. He has no idea why his parents named the dog Killer, but Brian thinks it is a funny name for such a wonderful, gentle pet. Killer has always been very tame with Brian. At most, he has barked at the postal carrier, but Killer is usually very well-tempered. One day, Brian takes Killer to his local playground and lets him run loose among the small children. When one of the children, little Sammy, decides to pen Killer, the dog suddenly turns on Sammy and tears him to shreds. Brian is charged with murder. A. Brian is guilty of murder because he should have known Killer was a dangerous dog. 
B. Ryan is guilty of murder because he knew his dog was likely to kill. C. Ryan is guilty of murder if he realized that killer was a dangerous dog. D. Ryan is guilty of murder because he is strictly liable for the acts of his dog. E. Brian is not guilty because he did not command the dog to kill the child. Analysis Hopefully, you didn't fall into the trap of thinking that just because a terrible thing has happened, the defendant is automatically guilty of murder. You must analyze the defendant's state of mind to determine whether there is malice. From the fact pattern, it is clear that Brian didn't intend for his dog to kill or maul the young child. Therefore, he lacks the first two types of malice, intent to kill or intend to cause serious bodily harm. However, if Brian was aware the dog posed a serious risk, and he callously took that risk, he may still have implied malice by acting with gross recklessness. Keep these principles in mind as we evaluate each of the possible answers. Is wrong because the standard for malice is not that the defendant should have known that his dog was dangerous but that he did know and took the risk dot apostrophe owed have known is the language of negligence, not recklessness. Recklessness requires that the defendant actually realize that he is taking risks that could harm another person. As we see in Chapter 10, gross negligence may be enough for some types of manslaughter, but it is not enough to prove malice for murder. Therefore, even if Brian should have known the dog was dangerous, Although it is hard from the facts to even make that conclusion, he is still not guilty of murder. B correctly states the right standard for a type of malice, but it doesn't accurately analyze what happened in the facts of this question. Did Brian know his dog was likely to kill? All the facts indicate that Brian sincerely believed that he had a wonderful, gentle dog. If he honestly believed that, he did not realize that the dog posed a danger to other people. Therefore, it cannot be said that he knowingly acted in callous disregard for human life. Once again, he may be a bit clueless. However, being naive is not the same as acting with malice. C focuses on what is really important for this question. The issue is whether Brian realized that killer was a dangerous dog. If he did, there may be an argument for gross recklessness. If he didn't, he didn't act with malice. C is phrased in a manner that states if he realized, then he would be guilty of murder. That is a true statement. So, even though C doesn't initially look like the right answer because it doesn't conclude what Brian's actual state of mind was, it is a correct statement. However, before selecting it, let's discuss the other two possible answers. D is ways off bass, but for reasons that you should understand. There is no such thing as a strict liability homicide except in cases of felony murder, which are not suggested in this problem. The lowest mens rea level for any homicide is criminal negligence. Due to the severity of the crime, the law does not find people guilty of homicide unless they or a reasonable person would have realized the risk to human life. There may be strict liability for other types of crimes, but not for homicide. He is also incorrect. If Brian knew that the dog posed a danger, it wouldn't matter whether he ordered the dog to attack or not. Malice can also be demonstrated by an omission, such as failing to keep your dog from harming another person. Brian is not guilty of murder, but not because he didn't command the dog to attack. He is not guilty of murder because he didn't realize that killer was a dangerous dog.
Therefore, C is the correct answer. In order to have malice, Ryan needed to at least realize the risk that his dog would seriously hurt or kill someone. If he realizes that risk, he has malice and is guilty of murder. If he doesn't realize that risk, he is not guilty of murder. Question 4. Russian Roulette Bobby and Molly Malone decide to play a friendly game of Russian Roulette. They play the game by placing one bullet in a five-chambered gun and spinning the cylinder. Then, they take turns pointing the gun at their temples, pulling the trigger, and seeing if the gun goes off. Bobby goes first. He spins the cylinder, pulls the trigger, but nothing happens. Molly then takes her turn. She spins the cylinder again. This time, the gun fires. Molly loses. She is killed instantly by the bullet and Bobby is charged with murder. A. Bobby is guilty of murder because his participation in the game showed extreme disregard for human life. B. Bobby is not guilty of murder because he didn't intend for Molly to die. C. Bobby is guilty of murder because he should have known Molly might die. D. Bobby is not guilty of murder because he couldn't know for sure whether the gun would fire. E. Bobby is not guilty of murder because Molly consented to playing the dangerous game. Analysis. Here we go again. The goal here is to determine whether Bobby has acted with malice and is therefore guilty of murder. One thing might be on your mind before we jump into that analysis. How can Bobby be guilty at all if Molly pulled the trigger and shot herself? Isn't this suicide, not homicide? As we learned in Chapter 7, a person can indirectly cause the death of another person by jointly participating in a deadly activity. Therefore, for purposes of this question, you should assume that Bobby's mutual participation and encouragement is sufficient to prove causation for a charge of homicide. Now, did he have the malice necessary for murder? The facts seem to indicate that Bobby realized the risk of playing Russian roulette, after all, if there isn't a risk of drying, what's the point of the game? And that those risks were egregious. In other words, Bobby demonstrated malice by his wanton and willful disregard of the likelihood that the natural tendency of his behavior was to cause death or great bodily harm. People v. Goke 579 n.w.to d 868 879 mitch 1998 to make life easier you can use a two-step process to determine whether the risk taken by the defendant was so extreme that is gross that it should constitute malice step number one did the defendant realize the risk to human life if yes the defendant acted with recklessness. Step number two, was the defendant's recklessness particularly egregious or gross? To make this determination you need to consider whether there was any good reason the defendant took the risk and how extreme the risk was. Although you can argue a variety of factors, it may be helpful to keep in mind the learned hand approach in evaluating how reckless the defendant's behavior was. Take a look at the costs of the defendant's behavior versus its benefits. Magnitude of risk versus social utility. Likelihood of harm societal benefit of activity. Seriousness of harm cost of alternative activity. For those of you who like flowcharts, think of it this way. Step number one. 
Did the defendant realize the risk to human life? Step number two. Was that risk gross? If we apply this process to our question, it quickly becomes apparent that Bobby realized the risks of the game and that taking that risk was particularly egregious or wanton. Although the risk of being shot was only 20%, that seems a fairly high gamble when there is no true benefit, other than the thrill, in taking the risk. Of course, this is a very stilted approach to what is still a gestalt approach by the jury in determining whether the defendant acted with gross or extreme recklessness. However, keeping these factors in mind gives the lawyer something to argue regarding the issue. The prosecutor will argue that it was outrageous for Bobby to take the risk that Molly would be killed just for the thrill of a silly game. Defense counsel might argue that the risks weren't that high so it wasn't extreme recklessness. Based on past cases, see Commonwealth v. Malone. 47A.2D 445 447, Pa. 1946, Bobby is likely to be found guilty of murder. Where does all this leave us with our possible answers? Skip a for the moment. By process of elimination, you can probably get to the right answer. B is wrong because it takes too limited a view of what is required to prove malice for murder. While Bobby may not have intended Molly to die. He is still guilty of murder if he acted with extreme recklessness. As in the prior problem, C is also wrong because it provides the wrong standard for extreme recklessness. It is not enough that the defendant should have realized the risk of death, prosecutors must prove that he did realize the risk. D is wrong because it suggests that a defendant must be 100% sure of the risks he takes in order for him to have acted with malice. There is no requirement that the defendant be sure that the victim will die. The essence of extreme recklessness is taking the risk. Even a 20% risk may be enough if there isn't any good reason to take the risk and the consequences are grave. E, too, is wrong because consent or assumption of the risk are not defenses to homicide. Think about it this way. Your life doesn't just belong to you. Society also has an interest in ensuring that you do not die. As such, even if the victim consented to taking the risk, the defendant is still responsible if his conduct shows an extreme indifference to the value of human life. Therefore, as the correct answer, Bobby's actions showed extreme disregard of human life and is sufficient to prove malice for murder. Question 5. Danger Below Harry decides to clean off the top of a building that is cluttered with construction materials. He heads up to the roof during rush hour. The crowd is streaming by the building below, but Harry starts cleaning the roof anyway by tossing large pieces of timber and cement over the side of the building. At first, he tries to throw the pieces off the side only when people are not walking below. Then, he decides, what the heck? I'm in a hurry and I don't know any of these people anyway. Alexis is walking by the building on her way to work. Suddenly, she gets hit on the head by a piece of cement and is killed instantly. A. Harry is not guilty of murder because he had no motive to harm. Alexis. B. Harry is not guilty of murder because he did not intend to kill or harm. Alexis. C. Harry is guilty of murder because a reasonable person would have realized that there was an extreme risk in tossing debris off the building. D. 
Harry is guilty of murder because he must have realized the risk that his actions would seriously injure or kill someone. E. Harry is not guilty of murder because Alexis's death was accidental. Analysis. This is our third question on malice by extreme recklessness. By now, your instincts should be steering you to the right answer. Moreover, you can easily go through the two-step process to determine whether this is an example of extreme recklessness. Step 1. Did Harry seem to realize the risk that he could seriously harm someone? Yes, the evidence shows that Harry knew there was a risk to others because he saw the crowds below and initially tried to avoid hitting someone. Then, he basically said that he would take a risk because he didn't know them anyway. In other words, he acted recklessly. Step 2. Did Harry act with extreme or gross recklessness? Once again, the answer would seem to be yes. There was little social utility to Harry's by or and no good reason he couldn't wait to clean the roof until there were no pedestrians. On the other side of the balance, there is a fairly high likelihood of hitting someone if you start throwing things off a building during rush hour. And, if you hit someone with lumber or cement, there is a strong likelihood you will kill or seriously harm the victim. Therefore, it appears that Harry did act with extreme or gross recklessness. To put it in common law parlance, Harry acted with a wanton and depraved heart. He had extreme indifference toward the persons below, regardless of whether he knew them or had a motive to harm them. Harry was certainly unnoticed that his actions posed tremendous risks to other people as he was cleaning the building. Let's go through the options for this question. Is wrong because a defendant does not need a motive to commit murder. In fact, for murders caused by extreme recklessness, Sometimes it is the defendant's very indifference that is the underlying reason the defendant commits the crime. B is clearly wrong because it only covers two out of the three types of malice. Even if Harry did not have the intent to kill or harm, he could still be guilty of murder if he acted with callous disregard of the risk his acts posed to other people. C is wrong because it misstates the standard for the third type of malice. The standard is not whether a reasonable person would have realized the risk. In order for there to be malice, the defendant needs to know and disregard the risk. It is a subjective standard for intent. We don't label someone a murderer unless he at least knows that he is taking risks with other people's lives. Skip to for a moment and look at E. He is wrong because if the deaths were truly accidental, that is, the defendant didn't foresee that his actions would harm anyone, this would not be a murder case. Rather, as we will learn in Chapter 10, such killings are either not criminal or, depending on the circumstances, manslaughter or negligent homicide. Of course, the difficult issue is how to draw the line between murder and manslaughter. That is an issue we will tackle soon. D is the correct answer. After one considers all the facts of this problem, it becomes apparent that Harry must have known that there was a substantial risk that he would seriously hurt or kill the pedestrians near his building. In casually disregarding their safety, he acted with malice and is therefore guilty of murder for Alexis's death? C. First Degree Murder At common law, all murders were capital offenses. Gradually, jurisdictions came to recognize that not every murder should be treated so harshly. Accordingly. They reformed their laws to provide for degrees of murder. In 1794, 
Pennsylvania became the first jurisdiction to distinguish between first and second degree murder. Defendants who were convicted of first degree murder receive the death penalty. Defendants convicted of second degree murder receive the lesser sentence. Jurisdictions can take different approaches in defining what constitutes first degree murder. Many jurisdictions use a model that classifies various types of murder as first degree murder. Typically, these include murders committed in a statutorily specified manner, for example, by poison or lying in wait, or of certain types of victims, for example, police officers, willful, deliberate, and premeditated killings, and certain types of felony murders. Two, first degree murder. One, specific types of intentional killings or intentional killings of certain types of victims. Two, premeditated and deliberate. Three, certain types of felony murder. It is easy to discern from reading a statute what specified manner of killings constitute first degree murder. Most often, it includes killings conducted in a particularly heinous manner, like torture or lying in wait. Likewise, it is easy to identify when a murder involves a certain type of victim, such as a child or law enforcement officer. It is more difficult, however, to ascertain when a. 2. For a discussion of felony murder, see Chapter 11. Defendant has acted with sufficient premeditation and deliberation to be guilty of first-degree murder. Therefore, the questions here focus on the meaning of premeditation and deliberation and how premeditated and deliberate murder differs from second-degree murder. 1. Premeditated and deliberate murder. Most states that grade murder provide that willful, deliberate, and premeditated murders are first-degree murder. The first thing to keep in mind is that today the phrase willful, deliberate, and premeditated may be redundant, redundant, and redundant. Generally, courts focus only on whether the killing was premeditated. If it was, it was also willful, intentional, and deliberate. However, if we pause for a moment, we can see that there really is a difference between premeditation and deliberation. Both mean more than just an intentional killing. Premeditation means to think about beforehand. There is no set amount of time required for premeditation. However, the longer a defendant contemplates a killing, the more likely it will be considered to be premeditated. By contrast, deliberation focuses on the quality, not the quantity, of the thought process. A defendant must act with a cool purpose. Again, although no specific period of time is required, the defendant gives some real thought to their actions and the consequences to the victim. The case of State v. Brown, 836 S.W.D. 530, Tennessee, 1992, does a good job of examining premeditation and deliberation. In Brown, a four-year-old child was beaten to death when the defendant snapped in dealing with a hyperactive, developmentally challenged child. Brown was charged with first-degree murder, which requires premeditation and deliberation. On appeal, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the first-degree murder and reduced the conviction to second-degree murder because there was insufficient evidence that Brown premeditated the death of the child and he did not deliberate with cool purpose before striking the child. See also State v. Bingham, 719 p.2d 109.
Washington 1986, manual strangulation of victim did not demonstrate premeditation and deliberation. Courts use different standards to decide whether a murder was premeditated. Some courts classify any willful murder as premeditated. As long as the defendant had a cool moment of thought, even for a second, and then purposely killed the victim, the defendant will be guilty of a premeditated killing. See, for example, Commonwealth v. Carroll, 194A.D 911, 917, Pa. 1963. With this approach, almost any purposeful killing will be considered to be premeditated. However, other courts require evidence of more deliberate thought and planning by the defendant. This can be viewed as an intense standard requiring purpose plus preconceived plan. In addition to proving that the defendant had the purpose to kill the victim, the prosecution must also prove that the defendant's killing was by prior calculation and design. See State v. Guthrie. 461 S.E.2D 163, W. Va. 1995. This type of premeditation is typically proved by three categories of evidence, either individually or in combination, planning activity, motive, and manner of killing. See People v. Anderson. 447 P.D. 942, California 1968. The first two of these categories, planning and motive, are self-explanatory. As for manner of killing, the courts try to distinguish between killings that show cool, deliberate thought, such as a single stab wound to the heart, and killings that demonstrate more frantic, chaotic behavior such as multiple, indiscriminate stab wounds. The difference between the two approaches to premeditated and deliberate killings is more qualitative than temporal. For the first type of premeditated killings, the bear's purposeful conduct will satisfy. However, for the purpose plus preconceived plan type of premeditated killing, there must be more evidence of the defendant's school deliberation before the killing. The following questions focus on the difference in how the courts view premeditation. Question 6. Punchy strikes again. Punchy is serving 20 years. In prison for a violent felony. To put it mildly, he has not adjusted well to prison. He has repeatedly attempted to kill the correctional officer who guards him, and has lashed out at fellow inmates who don't give him enough respect. One day. Punchy attacks the trustee who brings him the afternoon meal. A trustee is a prison inmate who works for the warden and receives extra benefits for his work. Typically, inmates become trustees by snitching on their fellow inmates. At the time Punchy attacks the trustee, Punchy is wearing a heavy jacket, even though it is midsummer, tennis shoes, rather than prison flip-flops, and has a homemade prison knife under his jacket. He kills the trustee with one stab wound directly to the heart. After the stabbing, Punchy hides the knife in the prison commode but it is found by the authorities. Punchy is charged with first-degree murder. A. He is guilty of first-degree murder because he acted with malice. B. He is guilty of first-degree murder under any standard for premeditation. C. He is guilty of first-degree murder only in those jurisdictions that require purposeful conduct, 
but not in those jurisdictions that require purpose plus a preconceived plan. D. He is guilty of first-degree murder because he used a dangerous weapon. E. He is not guilty of first-degree murder. Analysis. To answer this question, you must evaluate the facts to determine whether Punchy deliberately killed the Drastian. If so, how much planning and preparation he made for his attack. If it was an on-the-spot killing. With only a brief moment of cold deliberation, the intent may be sufficient for first-degree murder, but only under the broader standard demonstrated by the Carl case. However, if there is evidence of planning, motive, and deliberate means to kill, Punchy's actions may satisfy the requirements for premeditation under the more vigorous standard of the Anderson case. It seems as if Bunchy has done plenty of planning. He is wearing a jacket on a hot day to conceal the murder weapon. Instead of wearing flip-flops that would make it difficult for him to maneuver, he is wearing tennis shoes that give him more traction and a firm step. He even seems to have worked out a plan to hide the murder weapon in the commode. Additionally, Punchy has a motive to kill. The victim is a snitch. It would not be surprising if Punchy wanted to send a message to other inmates by killing the snitch. Finally, Punchy chose an effective manner to kill. One stab wound to the heart is consistent with a premeditated killing. Accordingly, Punchy appears to have killed in a premeditated manner, no matter what standard of premeditation is applied. With that analysis in mind, let's look at the possible answers is incorrect because it does not cover the complete requirements for first-degree murder. Whereas malice alone may be enough for murder in general, in this situation first-degree murder requires premeditation. Malice alone is insufficient. B seems like the right answer, but let's check the other possibilities just to be sure. Some students will pick C because they think it is safer to split the baby and they don't yet have a strong sense of how the standard of premeditation applies. However, the facts in this question are about as compelling for premeditation as you can get. The only other thing we could add is that Punchy sent a note to his friend saying that he planned to kill the snitch. Yet I think we can comfortably say that the facts as presented would be sufficient for premeditation under either standard. Therefore, C is too limited an answer and is incorrect. D is also incorrect. In fact, if you think about it, it is actually a pretty silly answer. The fact that the victim was killed indicates that the defendant used a dangerous weapon. The real question is what was going on in the defendant's head before and at the time of the attack. Was that dangerous weapon part of a plan to kill the victim? Finally, E is not correct because B is the right answer. This question presents a fairly straightforward set of facts demonstrating premeditation. Punchy is likely to be found guilty of first-degree murder. Question 7. Have some mercy. Wilma and Bernie have been married for 50 years. Tragically, Wilma is dying a painful death from an incurable disease. Every day, she asks Bernie to help her die so that she can be relieved of her misery. Bernie can't bear to see her suffer. He finally takes matters into his own hands and gives Wilma an overdose of sedatives. Wilma dries peacefully in her sleep. A. Bernie is not guilty of murder because he killed Wilma out of mercy. B. Bernie is not guilty of murder because he killed Wilma at her request. C. Bernie is guilty of murder, but not first-degree premeditated murder.
D. Bernie is guilty of first-degree murder. Analysis. It works against some people's instincts to decide that a mercy killing can be the highest degree of murder. After all, if vicious killers like Charlie Manson are first-degree murderers, why should we lump poor Bernie in the same category? However, the law is not back to the character of the defendant and his motivation for committing the crime. Rather, premeditation depends on his intent. Either a good or bad motive can be used to prove that the defendant acted in a premeditated manner. Thus, even though Bernie wanted to help Wilma end her suffering, he still planned the killing and acted deliberately and with premeditation. While he might get some type of a break at sentencing, depending on the jurisdiction, he has still met the mens rea requirement for first-degree murder. Therefore, as a wrong answer, even if Bernie's motive was to act out of mercy, he still acted with premeditation. Therefore, he is guilty of first-degree murder. Likewise, B is wrong. As we learn earlier in this chapter, the victim's consent is not a defense to homicide. In fact, Wilma's request can actually be used by the prosecution to help prove premeditation and explain Bernie's very conscious decision to kill her. How about C? Out of mercy for Bernie, you might be inclined to choose C and a jury may ignore the law and do just that. However, technically the facts demonstrate that Bernie killed in a premeditated manner. Therefore, C is wrong. D is the correct answer. Mercy killings can be considered as first-degree murders. C. For example, State v. Forest, 362 S.E.D. 252, and C. 1987. Question 8. On the spot. Marlon and Paul work together in a restaurant. Although they are not enemies, they prefer not to have much to do with each other. Marlon serves the food and Paul proudly prepares it. One day, Paul saw Marlin snacking on a patron's food before serving it to the patron. A stickler for proper health habits, Paul grabbed the nearest kitchen knife and started stabbing Marlin all over. One of the knife wounds hit Marlin's jugular vein and Marlin died as a result of his wounds. Prosecutors charge first-degree murder. In this jurisdiction, the heightened standard of premeditation is used. Paul is likely to be found a. Guilty of first-degree murder b. Guilty of murder c. Guilty of negligent homicide d. Not guilty of any crime Analysis Now that you have a sense for premeditation, let's quickly go through the options presented by this question. It will be a good review of the premeditation requirement. First the facts of this question do not present much, if any, cool, deliberate out of thought by Paul before he stabs Marlin. Certainly, in a jurisdiction that requires some type of preconceived plan, there is insufficient evidence to support that charge. There is no indication of Paul placing the knife nearby so that he could easily kill Marlin. The manner of stabbing indicates that Paul is flailing more than inflicting a predetermined wound. And, even though there is some type of motive for Paul's acts, it certainly doesn't seem like a motive that has led Paul to premeditating Marlin's death. Be careful to read the facts as given, not as you might write them. Given the facts in this question, there is not enough evidence of premeditation, at least under a standard that requires a preconceived plan to kill. 
even under the lower standard, it is doubtful that Paul formed the intent to kill under a cool moment of deliberation. Accordingly, it is highly unlikely that Paul would be found guilty of first-degree murder. That is a wrong answer. However, he is still in the cards. As we see in the next section of this chapter, second-degree or plain murder is often used as a catch-all category for murders when there is malice but insufficient evidence of premeditation and no legal basis to drop the crime down to manslaughter. Did Paul act with malice? Quickly review the three types of malice. Intent to kill, intent to cause serious bodily harm, and gross recklessness. Even though Paul may not have had the intent to kill, he clearly had the intent to cause serious bodily harm. Accordingly, he acted with malice. B seems to be a likely answer. However, before making your final selection, make sure to look at the other alternatives. C and D are both easier answers to eliminate. Even though we haven't studied negligent homicide in detail, see Chapter 10, your common sense tells you that this was not a situation in which Paul didn't realize he would hurt Marlon. Paul is stabbing at Marlon precisely because he wants to hurt him. Negligent homicides, sometimes referred to as involuntary manslaughter, are reserved for killings in which the defendant does not realize the risk that he will harm the victim, but a reasonable person would have. Here, there is no evidence that Paul did not realize he would hurt Marlon. Therefore, C is a wrong answer. Finally, D is wrong because there is evidence of malice. Be careful not to choose the no-crime option just because you are not sure what level of murder is involved in the problem. If there is malice, there is at least murder, even if it is not first-degree murder. B is the correct answer. For another case where the court required proof of prior calculation and design before allowing a conviction for first-degree murder, see State v. Guthrie, 461s.e.2d163. W. Va. 1995. 2. Murder committed by specific statutory means. In some jurisdictions, like California and New York, first-degree murder includes certain statutorily designated types of intentional killings. If the defendant kills in the manner prescribed by the statute, the defendant is automatically guilty of first-degree murder, regardless of the specific evidence of premeditation. Of course, if one looks at the types of killings ordinarily included in these lists, it wouldn't be difficult to prove premeditation for those crimes. For example, in California, any murder perpetrated by means of a destructive device or explosive, knowing use of ammunition designed primarily to penetrate metal or armor, poison, lying in wait, and torture is considered first-degree murder. California Penal Code $189. In New York, a defendant may be guilty of first-degree murder if she intentionally commits a murder against certain types of victims or while the defendant is trying to escape from custody. NY Penal Code, $125.27. For example, a murder is raised to first degree if the victim is a police officer or prison guard. If you are in a jurisdiction that approaches first-degree murder in this manner, your task is relatively easy. Simply determine whether the defendant committed an intentional killing and then check the statutory language to determine whether that particular type of killing is automatically designated as first-degree murder. Question 9. 
wrong victim. Aaron is charged with FRST degree murder for killing a police officer during a scuffle on the street. In that jurisdiction, FRST degree murder includes all intentional murders of police officers. Aaron killed the officer by beating the officer.s head on. The cement during an altercation over a speeding ticket. Would Aaron be guilty of FRST degree murder? A. Yes, if he acted with premeditation. B. Yes, if he intended to seriously hurt the officer during the altercation. C. Yes, if he even accidentally killed the officer. D. Yes, if he intentionally killed the officer by beating his head on the pavement. Analysis. Don't forget that the designation of a murder is first or second degree, and in some jurisdictions, even third degree, is based on the language of the statute. In this jurisdiction, all intentional murders of police officers are first-degree murder. Thus, your task is simply to determine whether Aaron intended to kill the officer. It is wrong because it doesn't accurately reflect the requirements of the statute. This jurisdiction does not require that a killing be premeditated to be first-degree murder. An alternative way to convict a defendant of first-degree murder is to prove that the defendant intentionally murdered a particular type of victim. Here, a police officer. B is a little trickier. We have learned how malice for murder only requires intent to cause serious bodily harm. However, this statute does not designate any murder of an officer to be first-degree murder. It must be an intentional killing. There is a real question here as to whether Aaron intended to kill the officer or just injure him when he beat the officer's head against the cement. As such, B falls short of the standard required for first-degree murder under this statute. For similar reasons, C is clearly wrong. The statute does not provide that accidental killings of officers are sufficient for first-degree murder. When we study felony murder, Chapter 11, you will see that many jurisdictions may designate such killings as murder or even first-degree murder, but the statute here makes no mention of such a category. Based on the statute given in this question, C is a wrong answer. Sometimes the most obvious answer is the correct answer. In this case, that answer is D. If the killing of the officer was intentional, by the terms of the statute, Aaron's acts fall within the classification of first-degree murder. 3. First-degree felony murder. We are going to postpone for a moment a detailed discussion of first-degree felony murder. Chapter 11 discusses this subject in more detail. Felony murder refers to a concept by which a defendant is automatically guilty of murder if a death occurs during the commission of a felony. In some jurisdictions, if the death occurs during a particularly serious type of felony, the homicide is automatically designated as first-degree murder, regardless of whether the defendant premeditated the killing or even intended to kill the victim. The felonies that would typically lead to first-degree felony murder include burglary, arson, rape, kidnapping, robbery, and mayhem, Parker. However, to really understand how this works, we need to spend some time on the concept of felony murder. In the meantime, here is a quick problem to introduce you to the concept. Question 10. Botched Burglary Sammy the Snake. All good burglars have a nickname. Sneaks into the Joneses' house at night to steal their precious painting. 
He intentionally does not bring a gun so that he won't hurt anyone in the house. Hearing a noise, Mr. Jones jumps out of bed and goes into the living room to investigate. He sees Sammy Dutch's irreplaceable Rembrandt. Jones has a heart attack and dies. Is Sammy guilty of FRST degree murder? A. Yes, because he acted in a premeditated manner. B. No, because he did not intend to kill Jones. C. Yes, because he acted in reckless disregard for human life. D. No, because Jones's death was accidental. E. Yes, if felony murder for burglary is considered a FRST degree murder. Analysis. This is one of those questions where you could easily pick the wrong answer unless you thoroughly review all the possible choices. So, let's take them in order. Is wrong because there is no evidence that Sammy premeditated Jones's death? In fact, the facts are the opposite. Sammy did not want to hurt anyone so he intentionally did not take a gun into the house. If he didn't intend to kill anyone, he certainly did not act with premeditation. Does that make be correct? No. Under the felony murder doctrine, even unintentional killings may qualify as first-degree murder. While B might be the correct answer if this jurisdiction did not recognize felony murder, if it does, it is irrelevant whether Sammy intended to kill Jones. C is wrong because it doesn't look like Sammy acted in conscious disregard for human life. Instead, he tried to be the most careful burglar he could be so that he would not harm anyone. D is wrong for reasons we learn in Chapter 10. The controversial aspect of felony murder is that it does cover accidental killings that occur during the commission of a felony. Once you understand felony murder, you can see that E is the correct answer. Jurisdictions can designate even accidental deaths that occur during certain types of felonies, such as burglary, as first-degree murder. Sammy had better hope that he is not in such a jurisdiction. D. Second-degree murder. 1. Catch-all murder. In jurisdictions that divide their murders by degree, second-degree or lesser-degree murder is often a catch-all category for any killing that is committed with malice that does not otherwise qualify for first-degree murder. Thus, it includes all intentional killings without premeditation, all killings committed with intent to cause serious bodily harm, 3 and all killings committed by gross recklessness. In other words, it is generic murder. Consider a case in which a defendant stabs his victim, but the jury does not believe there was sufficient evidence of premeditation. Assuming the defendant cannot argue provocation, an argument that might drop the offense down to manslaughter, the catch-all category for the defendant's intentional killing would be a lesser degree of murder, such as second-degree murder. 3. In New York Killings with intent to cause serious bodily harm are classified as first-degree manslaughter. Reckless killings are second-degree manslaughter. 2. Second-degree felony murder. Jurisdictions are free to use the second-degree designation in any manner they wish. Thus, some jurisdictions, like Pennsylvania, classify their felony murders as second-degree murder. CPA. Consolidated Statutes. $2,502. Other jurisdictions, such as California, provide a list of certain felonies that can form the basis for first-degree murder, and all other qualifying murders only lead to second-degree murder. Once again, 
We should review this in detail when we get to Chapter 11's discussion of felony murder. Meanwhile, you should be aware that a jurisdiction can classify some or all of its felony murders as second-degree felony murder. As a review of this murder chapter, let's consider second-degree murder in its most common understanding, all murders that do not qualify as first-degree murder. Question 11. Knife Play Mac and Phil are the best of friends who have some odd hobbies. When they are bored, they like to pretend that they are knife throwers and throw steak knives at each other. The goal is to come closest to the other person without killing him. Mac throws FRST. He misses Phil by defeat. Phil, however, is off the mark and hits Mac in the chest. As Mac dies, Phil tells him, I'm sorry, buddy. I didn't mean to hit you but you know how competitive I am. Which of the following is true? A. Phil is guilty of FRST degree murder because he acted in callous disregard of Mac's life. B. Phil is guilty of FRST degree murder because he acted in a premeditated manner. C. Phil is guilty of second degree murder because he acted with gross recklessness. D. Phil is not guilty of murder because he did not intend to kill his buddy. Analysis By now, this problem should be a cinch. We have learned that there are generally three ways to end up with first-degree murder, premeditated killings, statutorily designated killings, and certain types of felony murder. None of these seems to apply here. If none of these designations apply, the catch-all category is likely to be second-degree murder, or plain murder. Is the wrong answer because it incorrectly suggests that callous disregard would generally be sufficient to prove first-degree murder. It is not. In jurisdictions that distinguish between first-degree and other degrees of murder, it takes at least an intentional, if not premeditated, killing to end up as first-degree murder. Mere malice, as demonstrated by callous disregard would generally be insufficient. B is incorrect because there is nothing in the facts that supports the finding of premeditation. Phil didn't have the purpose to kill Mac. He says so directly. Therefore, Phil did not act with premeditation. This problem asks you to remember the basic standards for malice and murder. Gross recklessness is the lowest level recognized as malice for murder. The question is whether this idiotic game of knife throwing can be viewed as callous disregard for human life. It can't be. Mac and Phil realize the risk of their activity, which is why they engage in it. It gives them a thrill. The risk they are taking is also extreme. There is a high likelihood of harm to another person and there is little or no societal benefit from the activity. Thus, even though they are best friends. Phil can be guilty of murdering Mac by engaging in extremely risky activities that demonstrate want and disregard for the value of human life. C is the correct answer. It is right on the mark in describing the nature of Phil's activities and why they qualify as second-degree murder. For all the reasons we have discussed, D is wrong. For a second-degree murderer, intent to kill is not necessarily required. In jurisdictions that use it for the catch-all category for all killings committed with malice, gross recklessness is sufficient. E. Model Penal Code Approach to Murder Under the Model Penal Code, a criminal homicide constitutes murder when the defendant kills purposely, knowingly, 
or recklessly under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. Model Penal Code $110. There are no degrees of murder under the Model Penal Code. Rather, all murders are considered first-degree felonies that carry a possible sentence of one year to life imprisonment, or death. The Model Penal Code definition of murder does not include the common law term of malice. Nor does it define murder as including an intent to cause grave bodily harm. Rather, the Model Penal Code uses its own language of culpability to describe when a killing is serious enough to constitute murder. If the defendant has as her goal to kill, or knows that a death will be the consequence of her acts, or acts with extreme recklessness, she is guilty of murder. Using the Model Penal Code's approach to homicide, try the next question. Question 12. Neighborhood Madness. Steve is considered a neighborhood madness. He regularly leaves old junk in his front yard, including automobiles teetering on blocks, old refrigerators, and bins of sharp scrap metal. Several neighbors have complained to Steve that his junk could easily hurt children who play on the block. In fact, there have been several near misses when kids narrowly escaped being injured by one of the cars that fell off its blocks. Steve just ignores his neighbor's complaints. One day, tragedy strikes. Betty Sue, a young child who lives next to Steve, is killed when one of the cars falls off its block and onto her. Steve is charged with Betty Sue's murder. In a model penal code jurisdiction, Steve would be a not guilty of homicide because the death was an unavoidable tragedy. b. Guilty of FRST degree murder because Steve knew children could be killed. c. Guilty of second degree murder because Steve acted in a grossly reckless manner. d. Guilty of murder. Analysis A strong argument could be made that Steve has acted with extreme indifference to human life. He has been warned that his junk poses a danger to the neighborhood children, but he continues to consciously disregard the extreme risk to human life. There is no reason offered to justify Steve's indifference. Rather, Steve is taking a substantial and unjustifiable risk by leaving his junk where he knows the children are likely to be hurt. As long as you kept in mind the difference between the model penal code approach and the common law approach to murder. This question should have been fairly easy. Is wrong for two reasons. First, the tragedy was avoidable. Second, careless behavior may demonstrate an extreme indifference to human life and support a charge of murder under the model penal code. B and C are wrong because the model penal code does not have degrees of murder. If this question asked for the answer under common law, C would apply because extreme recklessness is a form of malice. However, under the Model Penal Code, D is the correct answer. Because of his extreme indifference, Steve is guilty of murder. F. The Closer, Delighted Afterthoughts Throughout this chapter, we have been discussing how a defendant's level of criminal culpability for a homicide depends on the defendant's mens rea. However, it is important to remember that what is crucial is the defendant's mens rea at the time of the act of killing. Indications of the defendant's mens rea before and after the killing may be helpful in inferring the defendant's mens rea at the time of the offense, but the ultimate decision is what was the defendant's mental state at the time of killing? To illustrate this concept, try the following closer question. Questions 13. What relief? 
Margot has always hated Nellie. One day, as Margot is approaching her home, Nellie jumps in front of her from nowhere and begins to scream. Margot hits the brakes, but the car still hits and kills Nellie. An investigation shows that Margot was not exceeding the speed limit at the time of the collision, did not anticipate Nellie's actions, and that not even a reasonable person could have anticipated that Nellie would have jumped in front of Margot's car. Nonetheless, prosecutors seek to prosecute Margot because she is so happy that Nellie is killed. In fact, when she was interviewed, Margot just kept on saying, The witch had it coming. Is Margot guilty of murder? A. Yes, because she had a motive to kill Nellie. B. Yes, because driving a car is the equivalent of using a dangerous instrument. E. Yes, because she had a motive to kill Nellie and she was clearly glad that she had done so. D. Yes, because she premeditated Nellie's death. E. No. Analysis. The problem in this question is that Margot may have had the intent at some point in her life to kill Nellie but she didn't have it at the time of the actual accident. To be criminally liable, a defendant must have a culpable mens rea at the time of the criminal actus rise. Otherwise, the defendant's expressed intent at other times is only circumstantial evidence of the defendant's intent at the time of the actual killing. Under this analysis, it is wrong because motive alone does not make a person guilty of murder. The real question is whether motive created an intent in the defendant to kill the victim and that intent existed at the time of the killing. In this case, even though Margot had a motive to kill Nellie, she did not intend to harm her at the time of the accident. In fact, there is not even evidence that Margot acted in a grossly reckless manner. Accordingly, evidence of Margot's motive is insufficient to prove the malice required for murder. B is wrong because even though automobiles may be dangerous instruments, the issue for murder is still whether the defendant intended to kill, intended to cause grave bodily harm, or even realized the risk that she could kill or seriously harm another. At the time of Nellie's death, there is no evidence that Margot realized that risk. Moreover, because the question states that not even a reasonable person would have realized the risk, Margot may not even be guilty of manslaughter. This part of the homicide analysis is discussed in the next chapter. For similar reasons, C is also wrong. Although it might be cold-hearted for Margot to be so happy over Nellie's demise, Margot's attitude still does not prove that at the time her car hit Nellie, Margot intended to harm or kill her, or even knew she was taking the risk of doing so. Finally, D is wrong because there is absolutely no evidence of premeditation unless Margot had some prior indication that Nellie might try to jump in front of her car. The correct answer is E. One need not praise Margot for her callous attitude toward Nellie's death, but unless Margot acted with culpable intent at the time of the collision, she is not guilty of murder. In other words, Margot might generally be a person with a depraved heart but she is only guilty of murder if she operated with that depraved heart at the time of the killing. Being delighted over another person's misfortune is not a crime in itself. Levinson's Picks 1. Bad Sport Day 2. The Enforcer D 3. Bad Dog C 4. Russian Roulette 5. Danger Below D 6. Punchy strikes again B. 7. 
have some mercy d. 8. On the spot b. 9. Wrong victim d. 10. Botched burglary e. 11. Knife place e. 12. Neighborhood menace d. 13. What relief? e. 10. Manslaughter. He had it coming, he had it coming, he only had himself to blame. And if you had been there, I'm sure you would have done the same. Jailhouse Dango from Chicago. Chapter Overview A. Voluntary, manslaughter and provoked killings. B. Killing in the sudden heat of passion. C. Requirement number one, actual heat of passion. D. Requirement number two A. Legally adequate provocation, categorical approach. E. Requirement number two B. Legally adequate provocation reasonable person approach. F. Requirement number three, and sufficient cooling time. G. Model penal code approach, extreme mental or emotional disturbance. H. Involuntary manslaughter and criminal negligence. I. Model penal code approach. Reckless and negligent homicides. J. The closers, name that homicide. Levinson's picks. Now that you have learned what murder is, it is time to examine manslaughter. Simply stated, under the common law manslaughter is the unlawful killing of another human being without malice. Like mer. Adair, the term malice is used for a variety of killings without malice. However, there are generally two types of killings that are included in the manslaughter categories, killings in the heat of passion or under extreme emotional. 157. Disturbance, often referred to as voluntary manslaughter, and reckless killings or those committed by grossly negligent behavior, often referred to as involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide. To make life easier, we examine each of these types of manslaughter separately. Even if different jurisdictions use different labels for the types of manslaughters, comma one, the concepts are generally the same. A. Voluntary, manslaughter and provoked killings. Believe it or not, not all intentional killings are considered murder. Because the law recognizes the frailty of human behavior. There are some types of intentional killings that are classified as manslaughter and typically carry a lesser penalty than murder. In jurisdictions that differentiate between voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter, these killings are often referred to as voluntary manslaughter or first-degree manslaughter. However, in many jurisdictions, especially those that follow the model penal code, Intentional killings under extreme emotional disturbance are simply labeled manslaughter. Model Penal Code $110.30 What types of intentional killings are these? Traditionally, voluntary, manslaughter applied only when a defendant was provoked. However, today jurisdictions apply it when there is provocation, heat of passion, extreme emotional disturbance, or imperfect self-defense. The first question you might have is, why should the law ever give somebody a break for killing? It is an excellent question. The heat of passion slash provocation doctrine is an increasingly disputed doctrine. At its origins, 
It was developed for those situations in which society recognized that even race-honorable men could be pushed to the point of killing. For example, if a man caught his wife in the middle of an adulterous affair, the courts were willing to mitigate his sentence if he killed in the heat of passion. Likewise, if a man were assaulted, but not to the point where he would be entitled to use lethal self-defense, then to he could intentionally kill but then mitigate his crime with a claim of provoked killing. Accordingly, voluntary manslaughter developed as a category of killings in which society was willing to partially mitigate the defendant's intentional. 1. For example, California law recognizes three types of manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, heat of passion killings, involuntary manslaughter, negligent homicides, and vehicular manslaughter. Pennsylvania has a similar approach, distinguishing between voluntary manslaughter, provocation killings, and involuntary manslaughter, reckless or grossly negligent killings. By contrast, New York recognizes first-degree manslaughter, killings because of extreme emotional disturbance, second-degree manslaughter, reckless killings, and negligent homicide. Killing of the victim. In other words, the defendant does not walk free, but he is subject to a lesser penalty. The problems with this doctrine should be apparent to you. The last thing that the law wants is to give a bunch of hotheads legal license to kill a person cheating with their wives. Accordingly, the common law developed strict standards as to when the provocation doctrine could be applied. We now examine those requirements. However, before we do so, let's start with an opening problem. Question 1. Tom and Dick. You wouldn't want either Tom or Dick as your neighbor. Tom recently killed his landlord when the landlord threatened to increase Tom's rent. Dick killed his wife's lover when he found them in bed upon his return from a hard day of work. The prosecutor wants to throw the book at both of them. Which of the following is true? A. Both Tom and Dick are guilty of murder because all intentional killings are murder. B. Both Tom and Dick are guilty of murder because they had motives to kill their victims. C. Neither Tom nor Dick is guilty of homicide because they were provoked to kill their victims. D. Only Tom is guilty of murder because it is a full defense for Dick to kill his wife's lover. E. None of the above. Analysis. Although you haven't yet learned the elements of provocation, the earlier introduction should have been enough for you to answer this question. By doing so, you'll begin to understand the basic principles of voluntary manslaughter. Let's start with A. As we stated from the beginning, not all intentional killings are murder. There is a category of intentional killings that is considered a lesser offense, even though the defendant intentionally killed his victim. Therefore, you cannot make a blanket statement like that set forth in A. B is also wrong because not all motives will qualify a killing for manslaughter. As we will see, when a defendant is provoked by a spouse's infidelity or an assault by another, the provocation doctrine may apply. However, killing your landlord because you don't want to pay your rent is not going to be a sufficient basis to claim manslaughter. For similar reasons, C is also wrong. Not all types of provocation qualify as a killing for manslaughter. Since there is almost always a reason why a defendant kills his victim, it would make no sense to open up the provocation category to any type of provocation. By doing so, 
the law would essentially eliminate murder. Accordingly, as we will learn, the types of provocation that may qualify for manslaughter are relatively narrow in most jurisdictions. Certainly, the request for a rent payment without more would not qualify. D is also wrong although you might have jumped at it because it mentions adultery, a type of provocation that can trigger manslaughter. However, D is wrong for reasons you have already learned. Even when provocation is a defense, it is not a full defense. In other words, the defendant will not walk away with no homicide conviction. Rather, provocation is a partial defense that mitigates the defendant's intentional killing down from murder to manslaughter. That leaves E, the dreaded known of the above as the correct answer. Many students are reluctant to select this option because they think they must have missed something in the other answers. However, if you have carefully analyzed each answer and none is accurate, E is the correct one. B. Killing in the sudden heat of passion. Perhaps the best example of the heat of passion doctrine at work is the case of State v. Thornton, 730s.w.2d309, Tennessee. 1987. In Thornton, the defendant came home and found his wife in bed with another man. Thornton shot first and asked questions later. The jury found Thornton guilty of first-degree murder, but the appellate court reversed, holding that Thornton's case was a classic situation of voluntary manslaughter. The court found that as a matter of law, any reasonable person would have been inflamed and intensely roused by this sort of discovery and held that the defendant acted in the heat of passion, and not with malice. How does the ruling in Thornton make sense? The answer lies in the concept of malice. As we learned, malice presumes a depraved and wanton heart, that is, a person who has no concern for human life and kills for that reason. A defendant who is provoked or acts under extreme distress is acting less on son and more out of pure passion. Even if the law does not completely excuse the defendant's conduct, it is willing to mitigate culpability because society recognizes the frailty of human nature. Glanville Williams, Provocation and the Reasonable Man, 1954. Provocation is therefore considered a partial defense. Some commentators disagree with the underlying rationale for the provocation defense. In their view, reasonable people do not kill regardless of the provocation. In addition, the provocation doctrine diminishes the value of the victim's life. Even though the victim did not pose a deadly threat to another person, the law allows the defendant to essentially argue, he had it coming, as if the killing were partially justified. At common law. There were strict requirements on the use of the provocation doctrine. For a defendant to argue provocation, the evidence must show the defendant acted in actual heat of passion, there was legally adequate provocation, and there was an adequate time for the defendant to cool off after he was provoked. As in any other area of the law, there are nuances to each of these requirements and we'll use questions to illustrate each. As we discuss these requirements, we use the phrases heat of passion doctrine and provocation doctrine interchangeably. They refer to the same legal concept. C. Requirement number 1. Actual heat of passion. If the theory for allowing a partial mitigation of charges is that the defendant is so inflamed that he is not forming intent to kill with a cool, deliberate mind, 
it makes sense that the defendant must actually be in the heat of passion at the time of the killing. If the defendant is not actually provoked, there is absolutely no reason to reduce the defendant's culpability. Accordingly, the first requirement for the provocation, heat of passion doctrine is that the defendant was actually in the heat of passion at the time of the killing. The next question gives you an idea of how this requirement works and why it is important. Question 2. Dubby and Ellie. Ellie returns home after a hard day's work. He catches his wife, Dubby, in bed with the gardener. Ellie starts laughing hysterically and says to the gardener, If you want her, you can have her. I'd rather mow the lawn. Ellie then heads outside. While he is mowing the lawn, he reconsiders what he said and decides this would be a good opportunity to get rid of his wife and her lover. He heads back into the house, loads his gun, and walks to the bedroom. Coolly, he takes aim and fires. He kills the lover instantly. If Ellie claims he killed in the heat of passion, his defense will most likely a. Succeed because a reasonable person might be provoked to kill if he finds his wife in bed with another man. b. Succeed if Ellie's wife and her lover intentionally provoked Ellie. c. Fail because Ellie may have been provoked to kill his wife, but not the gardener. d. Fail because Ellie was not acting in the heat of passion. Analysis. Contrary to what many people think, the mere fact that Ellie catches his wife cheating does not give him even a partial excuse to kill her or her lover. Rather, the heat of passion doctrine is only triggered if Ellie is actually inflamed at the time he kills his victim. In this case, Ellie might have been annoyed by the affair, but he certainly did not act out of the heat of passion. As the facts tell you, he coolly deliberated a plan to kill his victim. Thus, his killing was much more like a premeditated murder than a voluntary manslaughter. Given that analysis, let's look at our answer choices. Is wrong because it doesn't matter whether a reasonable man would have been provoked if the defendant himself was not actually provoked? The first requirement for the heat of passion doctrine is that the defendant, himself, must actually be in the heat of passion. The doctrine is not a justification for an angry husband to kill his cheating wife. B is also wrong because the intent of the victims is not the issue. Regardless of whether the wife and her lover intended to provoke the defendant, the heat of passion doctrine does not apply if the defendant was not actually provoked. C is wrong because it does not accurately reflect the facts of this problem. According to the facts, Ellie was not immediately provoked to kill either the wife or the gardener. Moreover, in most jurisdictions, if the defendant is provoked, it doesn't matter whether the defendant kills the cheating spouse or the lover. The heat of passion doctrine would apply in either case. For all these reasons, D is the correct answer. Ellie does not get a heat of passion defense because he did not act in the heat of passion. Rather, after some deliberation, he decided to kill his wife and her lover. In fact, not only does the defendant not get his homicide reduced to manslaughter, but he also may very well end up with first-degree murder because the killing was done with premeditation. D. Requirement number 2A, Legally Adequate Provocation, Categorical Approach Assume, for a moment, that the defendant actually was provoked to kill the victim. Is that sufficient to invoke the heat of passion defense? 
The answer clearly has to be no. Otherwise, every hot-headed defendant would automatically have a way to reduce a murder he committed to a lesser charge of manslaughter. The most important requirement in the heat of passion doctrine is that the defendant respond to legally adequate provocation. By limiting what is legally adequate provocation, the law can limit how broadly the heat of passion doctrine is used. There are several approaches to determining whether the defendant has been subject to legally adequate provocation. They include, the categorical approach, the modern reasonable person approach, and the model penal code's extreme emotional disturbance approach. Each of these approaches seeks to set limits on how broadly the provocation doctrine may be used. Historically, the courts recognized limited categories of acts that the law recognized as sufficient to excite the mind of a reasonable man to react with. Lethal force. See Regina v. Welsh, 11 Cox Grimm. Cass. 336, 338, 1869. These categories included aggravated assaults, observations of adultery by a spouse, illegal arrest mutual combat, and attacks against a close family member. Unless the defendant was provoked by one of these acts, the defendant could not assert the heat of passion doctrine. The next problem is designed to illustrate how this approach worked. Question 3. Neighborly love. Ben hears from his best friend, Mike, that Ben's wife has been having an affair with their neighbor. Ben immediately leaves work and gets home in time to see his wife go into the neighbor's house. However, Ben does not see what his wife and the neighbor do in the house. An hour later, the neighbor and Ben's wife come out of the neighbor's house. The neighbor smirks at Ben and says, She says I'm definitely a better lover than you. The neighbor then flicks a cigarette at Ben. Ben erupts in anger, grabs a brick on the walkway, and throws it at the neighbor and Ben's wife. He kills the neighbor. If Ben is charged with murder and the categorical approach is applied, Ben can a. Successfully argue heat of passion because his wife was clearly having an adulterous affair. b. Successfully argue heat of passion because the neighbor assaulted Ben with a cigarette butt. c. Successfully argue heat of passion because the reasonable man would have been provoked by Ben's situation. d. Not succeed in asserting a heat of passion defense. Analysis most people would have no doubt that Ben's wife was having an affair with a neighbor. Nonetheless, the categorical approach allows only very limited situations in which the defendant can argue heat of passion. The two obvious ones in this problem fall short. First, as an incorrect answer because Ben did not witness his wife's infidelity. He only heard about it. Therefore, under the categorical approach, Ben is not entitled to a heat of passion defense because he did not have legally adequate provocation. Similarly, it is highly unlikely that merely flicking a cigar at Ben would be construed to be a serious enough assault to satisfy the provocation requirement. Therefore, the two most likely categories used for heat of passion are unavailable to Ben. B is also a wrong answer. Many of you might have jumped at C because it sounds like a great answer. Indeed. It might be, but not under the standard you are directed to use under the call of the question. In a multiple choice exam, like an essay exam, always pay attention to the call of the question. In this problem, the question asks whether Ben could argue provocation under the categorical approach. Apostrophe.
Therefore, you are not at liberty to apply a more modern standard, such as the reasonable person standard. A further explanation of that standard comes up in the next problem. Ultimately, the answer to this question is D. Under the categorical approach, Ben does not have a heat of passion defense. Hearing about spousal infidelity is not legally sufficient provocation to mitigate a defendant's crime to voluntary manslaughter. Even provocative words are not enough at common law, no matter how insulting or insightful those words might be. See Jairud v. State, 583a.2d718, md. 1991. e. Requirement number 2b. Legally Adequate Provocation Reasonable Person Approach Since the 1860s, there has been a trend away from specific categories of legally recognized provocation. Instead, judges began to ask the jury to determine whether there was an act of provocation that would have inflamed a reasonable person to act at that moment without due deliberation or reflection, but out of passion. See Marv. People, 10 Mitch. 212 81 a.m. December 781, 1862, hearing of a wife's infidelity could be legally sufficient provocation. Of course, the tricky part of this modern approach is describing the characteristics of the reasonable person. Does the reasonable person share the defendant's physical traits? How about the defendant's emotional traits? The more the so-called reasonable person is like the defendant the more likely the jury will find that the defendant was justifiably provoked. Some courts take a fairly objective approach to determining who is the reasonable person. They allow the defense to argue that a person with a different dance same physical attributes, age, size, gender, would have been provoked. Thus, in the English case of Director of Public Prosecutions v. Camplin, 1978. To all the hour 168, 175, AC 705, A. HL, the court held that a jury should be permitted to consider defendant's age and gender in deciding whether a reasonable person with those characteristics would have been provoked. A minority of courts are willing to use an even more subjective approach to determining whether there has been legally adequate provocation. Not only do they allow the reasonable person to assume the physical characteristics of the defendant, they also frame the provocation issue in terms of whether a reasonable person with the defendant's emotional background would have been provoked. This approach, which borrows from the Model Penal Code approach, see Section G infra, is the most pro-defense standard. As long as there is an identifiable reason for the defendant's emotional response, the defendant may succeed at convincing the jury that he was provoked. Of course, this standard is also the most controversial standard because it identifies as reasonable an emotional response by the defendant. The outcome of a case can very much depend on what standard is being used in defining the reasonable person. As a general rule, the defendant wants the reasonable person to share as many as possible of the defendant's physical and emotional characteristics and life experiences. By contrast, prosecutors generally favor the most objective standard that does not direct the jury to stand as closely in the defendant's shoes. Try the following question to see the difference these standards can make. Question 4. Work is no fun? Bob hates everything about his job. 
He hates the job he does, he hates his co-workers, and most of all, he hates his boss. Every day, his boss berates Bob in front of his fellow employees. Because of a physical infirmity, Bob uses crutches, his boss calls him. Stump. One day, Bob's boss sees him taking a break to get a drink from the water cooler. The boss tosses a file at Bob that causes him to trip and fall. As the boss and co-workers are laughing and shouting, Bob grabs the letter opener in his pocket and throws it at his boss. It hits him in the heart and kills him. Under which of the following standards would Bob have the best chance to mitigate the killing to manslaughter because of legally adequate provocation? A. The categorical approach. B. A reasonable person approach that takes into account Bob's physical characteristics of being handicapped. C. A reasonable person approach that takes into account the boss's prior humiliations of Bob. D. B and C. Analysis. First, let's be clear. It is not at all certain that Bob will succeed with any provocation argument. However, the question asks which standard gives him the best chance at success. Is wrong because the boss's actions, even though reprehensible, probably still do not constitute a severe assault that would fit into one of the legally adequate provocation categories. B is better for Bob than A, but may not be enough. Under B, Bob could argue that a reasonable person with his physical infirmity would have been provoked and therefore he has a defense. However, one could argue that there are many people who struggle with physical infirmities who do not end up stabbing another person to death just because they have been ridiculed. Therefore, B is probably not the best answer. C offers a wait for Bob to argue that the jury should take into account his emotional state at the time he is humiliated and set off balance by his boss. If the jury asks whether a reasonable person who is regularly humiliated by his employer would have been provoked, he has a better chance at succeeding. However, C is still not the best answer. The correct answer is D because it allows the jury to step in Bob's shoes as much as possible in deciding whether there has been legally adequate provocation. It is the most subjective standard and therefore the standard that gives him the best chance of success. F. Requirement number 3, Insufficient Cooling Time Traditionally, a defendant was only entitled to argue provocation if he killed immediately after he was provoked. If he waited to kill, the court would find that his actions were not in the heat of passion and therefore there was no basis for mitigating his offense. For example, assume that a defendant came home and saw his wife in bed with another man. Instead of shooting his wife and her lover on the spot, the defendant went out, bought a gun, and returned to kill the man cheating with his wife. Under traditional common law, the defendant could not argue provocation because he had sufficient time to cool off after the events that initially provoked him. Under the modern approach, some allowances have been made to this strict rule. Principally, the courts have recognized doctrines that relax the traditional cooling time rule. First, some courts allow a delayed response to a provocative act if the defendant can show that his emotions continue to smolder even after the act occurred. If the defendant can show that he had a long smoldering reaction, the defendant may be able to argue provocation regardless of the fact that he did not respond to the provocative act for some hours or even days. Consider, for example, a defendant who has been repeatedly daunted by his victim, 
in situations in which there has been a long course of provocating, sick, conduct, courts have been willing to relax the requirement that the defendant's response immediately follow the provocative act. People v. Berry, 556 p.d777, California 1976. Alternatively, some courts have accepted the rekindling doctrine by which defendants can argue that even though they may have cooled after the initial provocative act, their heat of passion was rekindled by some kind of reminder of the victim's provocation. For example, consider a defendant who was sexually assaulted by the victim. At the time of the assault, the defendant did not strike back at the victim. However, when the victim taunts the defendant the next day about the prior assault, the defendant lashes back at the victim. A court may be willing to find that the defendant's heat of passion was rekindled, allowing the defendant to argue the provocation doctrine. There are times when both a long smoldering reaction and rekindling doctrine may come into play. For example, consider the famous case of People v. Ellie Nessler, SO 56082, 1993. Miss Nessler shot and killed her son's molester three years after his alleged acts of molestation when she saw him mock her during his molestation trial. Nessler argued that her passion had been long smoldering and was rekindled when she saw her son's attacker. The prosecutor claimed she was making good on a promise of vengeance. The jury agreed with Nessler and she was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. As you try the next problem... Consider how the insufficient cooling time rule serves to limit the provocation doctrine and whether it is wise to broaden the use of the provocation defense by allowing defendants to argue that their reaction was either long smoldering or rekindled. Question 5. Delayed Reaction For Billy, the day was an absolute nightmare. When he got home, he learned that a man in the park had seriously assaulted his daughter. The assailant was still on the loose. After visiting his daughter in the hospital, Billy joined the hunt for the assailant. He spotted a man in the park hiding behind some bushes. Billy yelled. Did you do that my little girl? The man only grinned and said, you bet. And I loved every minute of it. Enraged, Billy lashed out at the man and struck him in the head with a baseball bat. The assailant died and Billy was charged with murder. If Billy argues that the killing should be mitigated to manslaughter. He will most likely a. succeed because the assailant had earlier assaulted his daughter, b. fail because a grin is insufficient legal provocation, c. fail because he had sufficient time to cool off after learning about the assault of his daughter, d. succeed if the court recognizes the doctrines of rekindling and long smoldering passions. Analysis be careful with problems like this. Although your sympathies may naturally lie with Billy because of what the assailant did to his daughter, Billy may not be able to mitigate the charges against him down to manslaughter unless his situation meets the requirements of the heat of passion doctrine. The first question, of course, is whether Billy was actually provoked? The question states Billy was enraged and lashed out at the man. That suggests that he was actually in the heat of passion. The second question is whether there was legally adequate provocation. A serious assault qualifies as legally adequate provocation. It fits one of the categories of traditionally sufficient provocative acts. Under the modern approach, 
if a person attacks the defendant or someone close to him, one would expect a reasonable person to be provoked? The problem in this question is that Billy does not kill the assailant at the time of the initial provocation. Rather, he waits, as time to cool down, and then encounters him later. At that point, the law wants to make sure that Billy has not just cooled off and taken the law in his own hands. Rather, Billy isn't he led to the heat of passion doctrine only if the jurisdiction allows defendants to argue that their passions reignited or long smoldering. With these concepts in mind, let's look at the possible answers. Is a wrong answer because an earlier assault does not necessarily qualify for the heat of passion doctrine. Rather, it raises the issue of whether there has been too much cooling time and that cooling time has transformed Billy's act into a premeditated act of killing. B is also not the best answer. Even though it is correct that a grin is ordinarily not sufficient for provocation, it may be enough to rekindle the defendant's passions caused by an earlier, and much more serious, act of provocation. C initially looks like a good answer. In fact, under the traditional common law approach, it would be the correct answer. However, as always, it is important to consider all the options presented to see if there is a better answer. The better answer is D. While C may generally be true, D is correct because it recognizes the exceptions to the cooling time rule. Note that professors often construct questions that give several answers that are generally true, but only one answer that more specifically addresses the issue in that question. When there is a more accurate answer, it ordinarily makes sense to pick the more specific answer. G. Model Penal Code Approach Extreme Mental or Emotional Disturbance The Model Penal Code does not distinguish between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Rather, it recognizes two types of killings as manslaughter, recklessly killing another person, or killing another person under circumstances that would ordinarily constitute murder but which homicide is committed as the result of extreme mental or emotional disturbance for which there is a reasonable explanation or excuse. The first type of manslaughter is addressed in the discussion regarding reckless killings and involuntary manslaughter. The second type of manslaughter under the model penal code, killings under extreme mental or emotional distress, is closely related to the category of killings in the heat of passion and therefore is explained now. As you recall, Common law heat of passion killings require that there be a specific act of provocation that caused the defendant to act in the heat of passion. Model Penal Code $110.30 extends the concept of manslaughter to all killings when the defendant kills because he is suffering from an extreme mental or emotional disturbance, imt, for which there is a reasonable explanation or excuse. The reasonableness of the explanation or excuse regarding the is determined from the viewpoint of a person in the actor's situation under the circumstances as he believes them to be. Apostrophe. In other words, the model penal code expands manslaughter beyond those situations in which the defendant is provoked into killing. Rather, it includes any time when the defendant's act is triggered by a mental or emotional disturbance that causes him to act under the equivalent of a heat of passion. Thus, the IMD standard modifies the common law doctrine of heat of passion in several ways. First, it does not require that there be a specific act of provocation. It is enough if the defendant suffered from a condition that caused the defendant to react in an emotional manner. Second, 
because no specific act of provocation is required, there is no reason to be concerned about whether there was too much cooling time before the killing. By definition, the defendant must actually be suffering from the disturbance at the time of the killing. Third, there are no artificial restrictions on evaluating whether an act of provocation was legally sufficient. Because no specific act is required, even words may be enough to trigger the defendant's extreme emotional or mental disturbance. The tricky part about applying the model penal code approach is determining whether there was a reasonable explanation or excuse for the defendant Because the reasonableness of the explanation or excuse for the imd is determined from the viewpoint of a person in the actor's situation under the circumstances as he believes them to be, the standard is both objective and subjective. The standard is subjective in that the trier of fact should consider both the defendant's physical and emotional characteristics in determining whether there is a reasonable explanation for the defendant's reaction. However, the standard is also objective in that the trier of fact is directed not to consider the defendant's idiosyncratic moral values in making its determinations. In other words, if defense counsel can identify something in the defendant's past that accounts for the defendant's reaction, there may be a ground for him. However, if the defendant just lashes out because of a bad personality or apparent moral values, the trier of fact may find that that causes not a reasonable explanation or excuse for the defendant's behavior. See, for example, People v. Kosasa, 400 for N.E.D.1300N. NY 1980, defendant's bizarre behavior was not based on reasonable explanation or excuse, but on defendant's idiosyncratic personality. If a court finds that a reasonable jury could find that the defendant's by or meets the legal standards for him, it will give the jury an appropriate instruction and let it decide whether to mitigate the killing to manslaughter. As with many legal concepts, this standard is best understood by looking at concrete examples. Consider, for example, a defendant who was physically and emotionally tormented for years by a man wearing a blue tie. The attacks were brutal and left the defendant with emotional scars. Each attack was accompanied by a tirade of swearing by the defendant's attacker. Years later, the defendant walks by a man in a blue tie who starts swearing. Defendant reacts by attacking and killing the man. Under common law, the defendant's attempt to argue provocation would likely fail. Words alone are insufficient provocation. However, under the model penal code approach, the defendant could attempt to argue that from his viewpoint, in the circumstances as he believed them to be, there was a reasonable explanation or excuse for his extreme mental and emotional disturbance. Accordingly, under the model penal code, the jury could find the defendant guilty of the lesser crime of manslaughter. By contrast, consider the defendant who hates people of a certain race because he believes that they are inferior. Accordingly, the defendant attacks someone of that race and tries to argue him. The defendant's claim is likely to fail because a racist attitude may be considered an idiosyncratic moral value and not a reasonable explanation or excuse for the defendant's emotional disturbance. With these two examples in mind, try the next problem. Question 6. Life of Hard Knocks. Rudy's life has been a nightmare. He has never had a successful social life because of a large, physical deformity on his face. 
All his life he has been taunted by people calling him names like Elephant Man or Frankenstein. Some have even attacked him. Even after psychological therapy, he rarely has been able to leave his home because the constant ridicule tends to set him off into an uncontrollable rage. One day, Rudy reluctantly ventures out to buy some food at the market. While he is there, a group of people start to point at him and laugh. Scared and furious, Rudy explodes in anger and kills an innocent bystander. Under the Model Penal Code A. Rudy has a full defense to murder because he was provoked by the group's laughter. B. Rudy is entitled to a manslaughter instruction because there was legally adequate provocation. C. Rudy is entitled to a manslaughter instruction because he suffers from an extreme emotional disturbance. D. Rudy is guilty of murder. Analysis. This question makes it pretty clear how the model penal code standard takes a more lenient approach toward manslaughter than traditional common law. Under traditional common law, the group's actions, albeit obnoxious, would not constitute legally adequate provocation. However, the model penal code allows the jury to consider both Rudy's physical deformity and the emotional disturbance he has developed. While there is still no guarantee that the jury will mitigate Rudy's conviction to manslaughter, he has a better chance under the model penal code standard than he does under the common law. By looking at the possible answers, we can see why this is true. Is wrong because it states that Rudy would have a full defense? Don't be direct. Provocation, under common law or the model penal code, is never a full defense? It only mitigates the defendant's crime from murder to manslaughter. B is wrong because merely mocking a person, or pointing at him, is not traditionally legally adequate provocation. Not only does it not fit into any of the categories of legally adequate provocation, for example, witnessing adultery, an attack, etc., but a reasonable person is not expected to be so enraged as to kill just because he is embarrassed. It quickly becomes apparent that the choice is between C and D. In deciding whether C is the correct answer, it must be determined whether Rudy was suffering from an extreme mental or emotional disturbance for which there is a reasonable explanation or excuse. The question gives a historical basis for Rudy's situation. When looking at the actor's situation, the jury can consider Rudy's physical handicaps and psychological history. Here, the question states that Rudy has been under a psychologist's care and that he carries emotional and physical burdens that may explain why he reacted in the manner that he did. It does not matter that there was not legally sufficient provocation or that he killed an innocent bystander, instead of one of the persons who taunted him. The focus is on whether he had an extreme mental or emotional disturbance for which there is reasonable explanation or excuse. Given Rudy's history, it appears he did. Accordingly, C appears to be the correct answer. Because Rudy would be entitled to a manslaughter instruction under the model penal code, D is the wrong answer. H. Involuntary manslaughter and criminal negligence. Time to switch gears for a minute. Remember that there are two types of cases that are generally treated as manslaughter. The first type, which we have just finished discussing involves killings related to heat of passion or extreme mental or emotional disturbance. However, there is another type of homicide that traditionally is treated as manslaughter. Homicides caused by mere recklessness or criminal negligence may also be treated as manslaughter or, 
in some jurisdictions, negligent homicide, where jurisdictions differentiate between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Homicides caused by recklessness or extreme negligence are ordinarily classified as involuntary manslaughter. Apostrophe. This category of manslaughter is reserved for the clueless defendant. Consider, for example, the defendant who thinks it would be good for his toddler to play unsupervised with a boa constrictor in his crib. The giant snake kills the toddler. Is the defendant guilty of homicide? Although the lowest mens rea level ordinarily associated with crimes is recklessness, to because of the harm caused by a homicide is so serious, the law. 2. See Section 3. Has created a category of homicide that punishes criminal negligence. The cases in the area use many different and confusing terms to describe the level of mens rea for this type of manslaughter. Some refer to it as reckless, others as culpable negligence or gross negligence. All of these phrases are being used to describe level of criminal negligence that is beyond the negligence that leads to mere toward liability. Rather, it is a killing without due caution and circumspection apostrophe 3 to such a degree that the defendant's behavior warrants criminal punishment. In determining whether the defendant has acted in a criminally negligent manner, the jury may consider the seriousness of the risk that the defendant's behavior posed versus any social utility by the defendant's conduct. Thus, a defendant who drives negligently and kills someone because he is late to a movie is more likely to be found criminally negligent than a defendant who is rushing a sick child to the doctor. In both situations, the defendants have acted negligently because they should have realized the risk posed by their behavior. However, a jury may find the first scenario of negligence more egregious than the second and label it as criminal negligence. Unfortunately, the newspapers are full of examples of criminally negligent behavior. Parents who leave their children in a hot car, causing the children to die semicolon four parents not adequately feeding their children semicolon five parents failing to get medical care for an ill child semicolon six people leaving a loaded gun where children can reach it semicolon seven or restaurants serving tainted foods. In all these situations, the clueless defendant should have realized the risk to human life by his behavior and not engaged in the risky behavior. Although it depends on all the facts of the case, a jury may find that the level of negligence demonstrated in each of these cases warrants a conviction for manslaughter. It is important to keep in mind that if a defendant actually realizes the risk of his behavior and still acts in a manner that poses a substantial and unjustifiable risk to human life, the defendant may be guilty of murder. As you recall from Chapter 9, gross recklessness can justify a finding of recklessness for murder. However, if the defendant does not realize the risk, but a reasonable person in the defendant's situation would have realized the risk, the defendant has acted negligently and it is up to the jury to decide whether it is so gross as to be deserving of punishment. State v. Hazelwood 946 B.D. 875. 877 878. Alaska 1997. In deciding whether the defendant acted in an impermissibly negligent manner, some jurisdictions find that the use of a dangerous instrument. 3. C4 Blackstone, Law Dictionary at 192. 4. C. For example, People v. 
Coles L, 301 nil. App. 3D1, 703 N.T.D. 424. 1998. 5. C. For example, People v. Burden, 140 California RPTR. 282, California CT. App. 1977. 6. C. For example, State v. Williams, 484 P.D. 1167, Washington 1971, allowing manslaughter conviction for ordinary negligence. See also Christian scientist cases in which parents do not seek standard medical attention, but unsuccessfully try to cure their children with prayer. Walker v. Superior Court, 763 P.D. 852, California 1988. 7. C. For example, United States v. Irvin, 369 F.3D 284, 3D Sir. 2004. Automatically elevates behavior from mere negligence to criminally culpable negligence. For example, a defendant who negligently operates a car or a gun and thereby kills someone, may automatically be guilty of manslaughter. Try the following question to test your understanding of this type of criminal negligence or involuntary manslaughter. Question 7. Deadly Concert. The Roaring Stones play a concert in a crowded nightclub. Many of the attendees realize that anything can happen in a crowded club, but they shove their way in anyway. To please the crowd, the nightclub owner decides to use some indoor fireworks to punctuate the band's performance. The fireworks misfire and cause the curtains in the club to burst into flames. As the customers rush to flee the burning club, several are trampled to death. The nightclub owner is charged with involuntary manslaughter. The nightclub owner is guilty of involuntary manslaughter if a. He was on notice of the risk of using indoor fireworks but disregarded those risks during the show because he was willing to take any risk to bring in more patrons. b. He should have realized the risk caused by his extremely negligent behavior, especially when there was no good reason for him to take the risk. c. He acted in the heat of passion. d. He premeditated the deaths of the patrons. e. The victims did not contribute to the negligent behavior. Analysis. This question is reminiscent of the famous case of Commonwealth v. Wolensky, 316 Mass. 383, 55 N.T.D. 902, 1944. In that case, the defendant owned a nightclub, the New Coconut Grove. The nightclub had inadequate emergency exits and was generally crowded and unsafe. One night, when the owner was in the hospital, a barboy accidentally started a fire by lighting a match near some table decorations. The fire quickly spread, killing many patrons and employees trapped in the club. Defendant, the owner, was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. The court held that even though the defendant was apparently unaware of the risk at the club and was not even present when the fire occurred, he was grossly negligent in its operation. The conditions under which he operated the club justified criminal punishment. Using this case as a guide, 
Let's evaluate each of the answers proposed. Is incorrect. If the defendant actually was on notice and subjectively disregarded the risks of his behavior, he will likely be guilty of murder, not manslaughter. Don't forget that conscious disregard of the risk to human life is sufficient for malice and murder. Skip B for a moment while we consider the other options. C is incorrect because a heat of passion killing, although a type of manslaughter, is not the type that is ordinarily classified as involuntary manslaughter. Rather, heat of passion killings are typically voluntary manslaughter or manslaughter. Of course, D is incorrect because a premeditated killing is first-degree murder, not manslaughter at all. Finally, let's look at E. Contrary to tort law, the criminal law does not recognize any contributory negligence of the deceased as a defense to homicide. Thus, even if the concert attendees should have known better than to pack into the club, their negligent behavior would not excuse the defendant. B is the correct answer. The nightclub owner should have realized the risk by his use of fireworks. In fact, if fireworks are viewed as dangerous instrumentalities, the mere negligent use of them automatically would be sufficient for criminally culpable negligence. In any case, as in Wolanski, the nightclub owner in this case can expect to be charged and even convicted of involuntary manslaughter. I. Model Penal Code Approach. Reckless and Negligent Homicides. The Model Penal Code structures its approach to unintentional killings slightly differently from many common law jurisdictions. A person who kills another recklessly is guilty of manslaughter, unless the defendant demonstrates extreme indifference to human life. Model Penal Code $110.30 The Model Penal Code does not classify negligent killings as manslaughter. Rather, it makes them a separate lesser felony of negligent homicide. Model Penal Code $110.40 Thus, Killings that may be manslaughter under common law would be labeled negligent homicide under the Model Penal Code. The key under the Model Penal Code is determining whether the defendant consciously disregarded the risk to human life or should have known of the risk. If it is the former, the defendant is guilty of at least manslaughter and possibly murder. If the defendant should have known the risk, the defendant is guilty of negligent homicide. Question 8. Pet Alligator and he loves his pet alligator. The alligator is so gentle to him that he never even realized that it could hurt another person. However, Andy is proved wrong when a neighborhood child wanders into Andy's yard and becomes the alligator's lunch. Under the model penal code, Andy should be charged with a. First degree murder b. Second degree murder c. Involuntary manslaughter d manslaughter e negligent homicide analysis this question is a good review of your knowledge of the categories of homicides under the model penal code is wrong for several reasons first the model penal code does not have different degrees of murder see model penal code $110.20 second murder requires that the defendant either purposely knowingly or recklessly under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life cause the death of another. In this question, clueless Andy honestly does not believe his pet would hurt another person. For this reason, B is also incorrect. 
bankruptcy is the wrong answer because the model penal code also does not have a separate category of involuntary manslaughter. Rather, all reckless killings are mere manslaughter. Therefore, the question is whether Dundee has acted in a reckless or negligent manner. Given the model penal code's understanding of those terms, it appears as if Dundee has acted negligently. He should have realized the risk to human life, but he did not. Accordingly, E is the correct answer and D is wrong. J. The closers, name that homicide. In real life, as well as on law school exams, a fact pattern may suggest several different levels of homicide. When this occurs, it is important for the student to focus on the answer that gives both a correct statement of the law and that matches the levels of homicide to that fact pattern. Try these closers to test your ability to match the law with the actual facts of your problem. Question 9. Tommy Student. Tommy Student has survived a semester of criminal law. On the day of his final exam, he arrives at the test site exhausted after studying for 72 hours straight. As he reads the exam, Tommy becomes furious. His professor has humiliated him by using him as the clueless defendant in one of her hypotheticals. Unable to focus, Tommy storms out of the exam room and heads for the professor's office. When he arrives at the office, Tommy begins screaming and gesticulating with his pen. When the professor tells him to put down the pen, Tommy picks up a letter opener on her desk and begins to gesture with it. As he jabs at his professor, Tommy falls forward. The letter opener strikes Tommy's professor in the chest. She dies of a wound to her heart. Which of the following is correct? A. If charged with murder, Tommy may use the model penal code to argue that he is only guilty of manslaughter. B. If charged with first-degree murder, Tommy should be acquitted because he had no motive for the killing. C. If charged with second-degree murder, Tommy should be acquitted because he only intended to seriously injure, not kill his professor. D. If charged with negligent homicide, Tommy is not guilty because he did not intend to kill his professor. Analysis At first glance, several of these answers might look good. However, it is important to keep focused on whether the answer states both the law and facts correctly, and accurately applies the law to the facts. Let's start with B. B should be eliminated as an answer right away. First. Motive is not required for a first-degree murder conviction, although it is usually helpful to prove premeditation. Moreover, the facts of this problem indicate that Tommy did have a motive to kill. He was angry at his professor for humiliating him. B is wrong as to both the law and the facts. C is also wrong. It misstates the law. If Tommy had an intent to seriously injure his professor, that would be sufficient for second-degree murder. Some students will unfortunately jump at D simply because it mentions negligent homicide and the facts state that Tommy fell forward at the time of the killing. However, read the answer carefully. It doesn't state that Tommy is guilty of negligent homicide. Rather, it states that he is not guilty because he did not intend to kill. Negligent homicides do not require an intent to kill. The only answer that comes close to having both the facts and the law correct is A. Under the model penal code, Tommy could argue and He would argue that his physical fatigue, together with the emotional humiliation he suffered, 
triggered him to kill. If accepted, he would only be guilty of manslaughter. Question 10. Deadly Doctor. Dolly is addicted to plastic surgery. Every few months, she feels compelled to run to her plastic surgeon, Dr. Prieti, for another procedure to make her even more beautiful. The problem is that Dolly is now 75 years old, has a heart condition, and looks more artificial than a Barbie doll. The doctor is reluctant to turn her away because she is a long-time patient and he's convinced that she can still tolerate some additional surgeries. Therefore, Dr. Prieti schedules Dolly for another facelift. During the surgery, Dolly's blood pressure plummets. Dr. Prieti does everything he can do to save her, but Dolly dries during the procedure. Dr. Prieti is sued for malpractice and the prosecutors are threatening criminal charges. Under the model penal code, which of the following is correct? A. Dr. Prieti is guilty of involuntary manslaughter because he should have known that Dolly could not tolerate another surgery. B. Dr. Prieti is not guilty of a crime because malpractice is a tort, not a criminal offense. C. Dr. Prieti is guilty of murder because he acted with extreme indifference to human life. D. Dr. Prieti is guilty of negligent homicide if he acted recklessly in doing the surgery. E. None of the above. Analysis. Dr. Prieti certainly may not be the best doctor in the world, but it is a different question as to whether he can be criminally charged and for what crime. Let's consider each of the possible answers to those questions. Is incorrect for the simple reason that there is no category of involuntary manslaughter under the model penal code. The model penal code recognizes negligent homicide as a third-degree felony. MPC $210.40. B is also incorrect because malpractice can, in extreme situations, be a criminal homicide. The real question is whether Dr. Prieti acted with criminal negligence, that is, should he have been aware of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that Dolly might die from the surgery? In determining that Dr. Prieti's actions constituted negligence, the trier of fact must find that Dr. Prieti's conduct was a gross deviation from the standard of care that a reasonable person would have used in his situation. MPC $2.00 There is a real temptation to select C because Dr. Prieti's actions seem to be so indifferent to the risks to Dolly. However, look again at the definition of murder under the model penal code. MPC $210.20 requires that the defendant act recklessly under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. Emphasis added, in turn, MPC $2.02 defines recklessly as one who consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk. In this question, Dr. Prieti is convinced that there is no such risk to Dolly. Therefore, assuming the jury believes him, he has not acted with conscious disregard. Rather, he is the clueless defendant who should have known of the risk. C is a wrong answer because the facts of the problem do not show he acted with conscious disregard. If he realized the risks, but did not care, C would be the correct answer. D can also be quickly eliminated as a correct answer because, unlike involuntary manslaughter under the common law, the model penal code only classifies negligent deaths as negligent homicide. If Dr. Prieti acted recklessly, he would face murder charges, 
assuming it was extreme indifference to human life. MPC $210.20. The answer to this question is the dreaded, none of the above. E is the correct answer because none of the other answers is correct. Levinson's Picks 1. Tom and Dickie 2. Debbie and Elliot D. 3. Neighborly Love D. 4. Work is no fun D. 5. Delayed Reaction D. 6. Life of Hard Knocks C. 7. Deadly Concert B. 8. Pet Alligator E. 9. Tommy Student A. 10. Deadly Doctor E. 11. Felony Murder and Misdemeanor Manslaughter, Unlawful Act Doctrine. There's more than one way to skin A. Cat and there's more than one way to prove murder. Chapter Overview A. Felony Murder, The General Rule B. Limitation on Felony Murder, Inherently Dangerous Felonies C. Limitation on Felony Murder, Merger Doctrine D. Application of Felony Murder Doctrine, During the Commission of the Felony E. Felony Murder Causation Issues 1. Who did the killing? 2. Who was killed? 3. Did it further the felony? F. Provocative Act Doctrine G. Model Penal Code Approach to Felony Murder H. Unlawful Act, Misdemeanor Manslaughter Doctrine I. The Closer, Felony Murder and the Death Penalty Levinson's Picks now that you have mastered the mens rea levels required for murder and manslaughter, set aside that approach and take a look at naturalistic shortcuts used to prove murder and manslaughter. The 179. Felony murder doctrine allows prosecutors to prove murder simply by showing a death occurred during the defendant's commission of a felony, instead of proving that the defendant acted with malice. Using a legal fiction. Prosecutors can substitute the defendant's intent to commit a felony for the ordinary intent required for murder. According to the felony murder rule, once it is proved that the victim's death occurred during the defendant's commission of a felony, the defendant is automatically guilty of murder, regardless of her mens rea. In many states, the legislature specifies exactly which felonies qualify for the felony murder doctrine. In other jurisdictions, the courts must decide which felonies will trigger application of the rule. To do so, the courts not only analyze the general felony murder rule, but also the limitations on its application. As you might suspect, the felony murder doctrine is controversial. It conflicts with criminal law's basic premise that a defendant should be punished according to the harm she intended to inflict. The felony murder doctrine effectively allows a defendant to be convicted of murder for an unintentional killing. Despite the controversy, and the model penal code's rejection of the doctrine, the felony murder doctrine still thrives in the United States. Yet, the criticisms have led many jurisdictions to impose limitations on its use. This chapter discusses the operation of the felony murder rule and these limitations. The chapter also discusses a related rule the Unlawful Act Doctrine, also known as the Misdemeanor Manslaughter Doctrine. Under the Unlawful Act Doctrine, a defendant is automatically guilty of manslaughter if a death occurs during the defendant's commission of an unlawful act that is not a felony. 
Once again, because of concerns about its use, some limitations have been created for its application. A. Felony murder, the general rule. The felony murder rule dates back to early British common law. One when it was first used, the felony murder doctrine might have made some sense. In early common law times, it was a capital offense to commit any felony. Thus, if one shot at a neighbor's deer and killed it, the defendant would be guilty of a capital crime. What would happen, however, if the arrow went astray and killed the neighbor? Even if the killing were accidental, common law would hold the defendant responsible for murder because he was already facing the death penalty for the underlying felony. Under the felony murder doctrine, the defendant is guilty of constructive murder because the intent to commit the felony substitutes for the intent to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. Traditionally, the felony murder doctrine. 1. For a history of the felony murder doctrine, see People v. Aaron, 409 Mitch, 672, 1980, is not limited to foreseeable deaths. A felon is strictly liable for all killings committed personally or by an accomplice in the course of the felony. Today, a classic example of the felony murder rule would be a bank robber who intends to rob a bank without harming any victims. To that end, the robber uses a toy gun and speaks softly during the robbery. Despite the robber's precautions, one of the bank's customers has a heart attack and dies. Under the felony murder doctrine, the defendant is still guilty of murder even though she did not intend to kill or harm, or believe that she was taking the risk of harming, the customer. The rationales offered for the felony murder rule are it gives added incentive to felons not to participate in felonies or at least to be extra careful in their commission. It vindicates society's additional calls for retribution when a death occurs, and it eases the prosecution's burden of proving more lice in cases in which the defendant probably did act in callous disregard of human life, but it may be difficult to prove. Many modern commentators reject the felony murder rule. They argue that a person cannot be deterred from committing an accidental act. The rule reflects a bad luck principle that punishes defendants who just have the bad luck of having someone unexpectedly die during their commission of a felony. Culpability for murder should be tied to a defendant's mens rea, and prosecutors do not need assistance in homicide prosecutions, especially given that statistical evidence shows that homicides occur in felonies at a much lower rate than expected and, when a death occurs, there is usually evidence of the defendant's reckless intent. At common law, felony murder based on the big six felonies of burglary, rape, kidnapping, robbery, arson, and mayhem would automatically lead to a first-degree murder charge. All other qualifying felonies, which meant that the felonies met the limitations discussed in the upcoming subsections of this chapter, would lead to a second-degree murder conviction. Gradually, England, the creator of the felony murder doctrine, move it away from its application. In 1957, England abolished the felony murder rule. However, the rule remains, in one form or another, in nearly every state in the United States. In some jurisdictions, it creates automatic liability for murder. In other jurisdictions, such as Michigan, the rule creates a special category of murders requiring heightened punishment. The first question of this chapter helps you test your basic understanding of the general felony murder rule. After that question, 
We examine the limitations jurisdictions have put on the application of the rule because of the criticisms that have been leveled at it. Question 1. Accidental murder. Katie is desperate for money. Her son, whom she adores, wants to go to camp with his friends. However, Katie does not have the money to send him. She decides to get the money she needs by buying insurance on an old boat her family hasn't. Surreptitiously burning it to collect the insurance proceeds. Believing her son is at school, Katie goes down to the empty lot where the boat is kept. She looks around to make sure no one is nearby and then lights the boat on fire. After the boat is destroyed, she is horrified to discover that her son skipped school that day and was hiding out in the boat with his friends. The friends survived, but her son was killed during the fire. Under the felony murder rule, Katie is a. Guilty of murder because she acted with callous disregard for human life. b. Guilty of murder because she should have realized her son could have been hiding in the boat. c. Guilty of murder because her son died during her commission of a felony. d. Guilty of involuntary manslaughter because a reasonable person would have realized that there is always a risk of harm when one sets a fire. e. Not guilty because she never intended to harm another person. Analysis. Don't forget that the felony murder rule is the bad luck rule. Obviously, Katie did not intend to harm her son. She loved him and wanted to get money to send him to camp. Nonetheless, she engaged in a felony, arson, that led to his death. Accordingly, under the traditional common law rule, Katie would be guilty of her son's murder. Let's examine the various options to see which one accurately applies the felony murder rule to the facts of this question. Is wrong. Although prosecutors might be able to make a case that Katie knew of the risk to human life and acted in reckless disregard of it, the felony murder rule does not require proof of malice. Under the felony murder rule, Katie is guilty of murder regardless of whether she acted in callous disregard for human life. In fact, it might be difficult in this case for the prosecution to prove actual malice. Katie is likely to argue that she had no reason to believe anyone would be harmed because the boat is kept in an empty lot, away from other people, and she chose to burn it when she thought her son was safe in school. By using the felony murder rule, the prosecution could avoid the burden of proving that Katie acted with callous disregard for human life. B is also wrong because the felony murder rule does not even require that the defendant should have been aware of the risk. The defendant's responsibility for the murder is automatic, regardless of whether another person would have been aware of the risk to human life. We will address C in a moment. Meanwhile, D is also wrong. In fact, D is wrong for two reasons. First, the felony murder rule does not require that the prosecution prove any level of mens rea for the homicide. Second, D gives the standard for involuntary manslaughter when one is using the mens rea approach to levels of homicide. Felony murder bypasses that approach. Our choices are now C and E. The moment of truth has arrived. Do you understand the basic nature of the felony murder rule? If you do, you will automatically jump at C as the answer. E is wrong precisely because the felony murder rule does not require that the defendant intend to harm anyone to be guilty of murder. As C states, Katie is guilty of murder because a death occurred during her commission of a felony. B. 
limitation on felony murder, inherently dangerous felonies. As courts became concerned about the fairness of the felony murder rule, they developed limitations on its application. These limitations still apply for felonies that are not specifically listed in qualifying statutes for felony murder in the applicable jurisdiction. The first limitation, adopted by many jurisdictions, is that the defendant be engaged in an inherently dangerous felony at the time the victim's death occurs. Consider, for example, a situation in which a defendant is involved in tax fraud. While the defendant is showing his accountant how he plans to scam the Internal Revenue Service, the accountant has a heart attack and dies. Under the traditional felony murder doctrine, the defendant would automatically be guilty of murder. Concerned about the harshness of this doctrine, many jurisdictions require that the underlying felony be one that is already inherently dangerous to human life. By aiding this requirement, those jurisdictions make it more likely that the defendant actually acted with malice, even though the felony murder doctrine does not require that actual malice be proved. With such a requirement, the tax cheat would be off the hook for murder because the underlying felony of tax fraud is one that is not likely to be found inherently dangerous to human life. Although this limitation is fairly easy to understand, there is an added twist you must learn. How do we determine whether a felony is inherently dangerous? Should we look at the felony in the abstract and ascertain whether commission of the felony will routinely put victims' lives at risk? Or should we look at how the defendant committed the felony in the case at issue and determine whether the felony as committed was particularly risky? As is often the case in the law, the standard you select often makes the crucial difference in whether the felony murder doctrine applies. Defendants tend to prefer the felony in the abstract approach because it gives them leeway to argue that there are many ways for the underlying felony to be committed in which no one will get hurt. Consider, for example, the felony of grand theft. In the abstract, most of us would say that the felony of grand theft is not one inherently dangerous to human life. There are many ways to commit that felony without anyone being physically harmed. However, what if the grand theft is committed by telling a child's parents that the child, who is suffering from cancer, is best treated with a bogus therapy? As committed, the felony posed a great danger to human life. If the as committed test is applied, the felony would be inherently dangerous to human life. See People v. Phillips, 414p.2d. 353, California 1966. Finding the felony of grand theft in the abstract was not inherently dangerous to human life. For prosecutors, the as committed test is the preferred standard for obvious reasons. The prosecution would not be seeking to apply the felony murder rule unless somebody has died in the commission of the felony in that case. Thus, as committed, that felony proved to be very dangerous. Often, the decision of whether the felony murder rule will survive the first limitation on its application depends on what underlying felony prosecutors choose to anchor the rule and what standard the court uses to determine whether it is inherently dangerous. Go back to our arson case with the accidental death. If prosecutors charge the underlying felony of insurance fraud, it is less likely to be considered inherently dangerous, at least in the abstract, than the felony of arson. Likewise, if the felony is evaluated as committed, 
it is much more likely to be considered inherently dangerous than evaluating the felony in the abstract. To see another example of how this first limitation works, try the next question. Question 2. Shotgun Mama. Barbara is an ex-felon. She has been convicted of mail fraud for trying to sell fake gems to unwitting buyers. The police get word that Barbara is back to her old tricks. Therefore, they get a search warrant for her home to see if she has set up another mailing operation to solicit buyers for the fake gems. While executing the warrant, an officer trips over something sticking out from under the couch. As it turns out, Barbara has placed a loaded shotgun under her couch to protect her from intruders. The gun goes off and kills the officer. Barbara is charged with murder. Under the felony murder doctrine, Barbara a. Cannot be guilty because mail fraud is not an inherently dangerous felony. b. Cannot be guilty because she never intended to harm the officer. c. Is guilty because the felony of being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm is inherently dangerous in the abstract. d. Is guilty because the felony of being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm was inherently dangerous as committed. Analysis Barbara was illegally in possession of a firearm and someone died. Under traditional common law, that would be sufficient to find her guilty of murder under the felony murder rule. However, the modern approach requires that the court determine whether Barbara's underlying felony was inherently dangerous. To make that determination, it is important to do two things, focus on the correct underlying felony for the felony murder and properly apply the tests for determining whether a felony is inherently dangerous. Just because Barbara routinely engages in mail fraud, it would be wrong to assume that the felony murder charge would be based on the felony of mail fraud. As we have seen, in the abstract, mail fraud is not a particularly dangerous felony. Therefore, it might be best to look for another possible felony to apply the felony murder doctrine. In this question, Barbara is also guilty of being an ex-felon in possession of a weapon. Perhaps that felony will be a better fit for the doctrine. Let's look at the answers to see. A would it be the right answer if the only possible underlying felony were mail fraud. However, before you pick that answer, it is best to check other possible underlying felonies. Therefore, hold off on selecting A until we look at the other choices. We can quickly eliminate B. It is wrong because it completely ignores the felony murder doctrine. If the felony murder doctrine applies, it does not matter that Barbara never intended to injure the officer. How about C? C is wrong for a different reason. Although we may generally be afraid of ex-felons, it is not accurate to say that being an ex-felon in possession of a weapon is an inherently dangerous crime. There are many ways in which a felon can possess a weapon without creating a high likelihood of killing anyone. For example, an ex-felon may have a collection of old pistols in a locked cabinet. Technically, that still violates the prohibition on ex-felons having firearms, but it certainly is not inherently dangerous. See People v. Satchel. 489p.d1361 California 1971. That leaves us with D. As it turns out, the manner in which Barbara committed the felony of being an ex-felon in possession of a firearm was dangerous in this case. 
she dangerously left the weapon in a place where someone could trip over it and get hurt. Thus, if the as-committed standard is applied, Barbara would be guilty of murder under the felony murder doctrine. Accordingly, even though Barbara might not be guilty of felony murder based on an underlying felony of mail fraud, there is another felony that would qualify as inherently dangerous. D, not A, is the better answer. By now, you may have figured out that the requirement that the underlying felony be inherently dangerous is designed to limit the felony murder doctrine to those felonies in which it is more likely that the defendant realized that her actions could hurt another person. The inherently dangerous limitation eliminates the least dangerous felonies from application of the felony murder doctrine. Also, there are some felonies that have traditionally satisfied the standards of the felony murder doctrine. They include the common law felonies of burglary, arson, robbery, kidnapping, rape, and mayhem, Parker. In fact, many jurisdictions list these felonies as among those that may trigger first-degree felony murder. C. Limitation on Felony Murder, Merger Doctrine There is another limitation on the felony murder doctrine referred to as the Merger Doctrine or the Independent Felony Limitation. Just as the inherently dangerous limitation precludes the least serious types of felonies from eligibility for the felony murder doctrine, the independent felony limitation blocks some of the most serious felonies from application of the doctrine. Under the independent felony limitation, if the underlying felony is an integral part of the homicide itself, the felony murder doctrine is not applied. In other words, if the underlying felony is just a step toward causing death, it merges with the resulting homicide. To use the felony murder doctrine, there must be a separate purpose for punishing the underlying felony. For example, assume the defendant is charged with assault with intent to kill and felony murder. Prosecutors could not use the assault with intent to kill as the underlying felony for their felony murder charge. This makes sense for two reasons. Prosecutors have to prove intent to kill anyway, so it doesn't make sense to excuse them from proving intent to kill for the murder, and assaulting someone with the intent to kill is just a step toward killing them. The assault literally merges into the murder. The independent felony limitation serves many purposes. First, it prevents the bizarre result that would occur if any felony could serve as the basis for the felony murder doctrine. If any felony could qualify there would never be a crime of manslaughter. Think about it. Manslaughter is a felony. A death occurs during that felony. Automatically, all manslaughters would be murders. That is a bizarre result. Second, the independent felony limitation prevents jurors from being confused as to when they must find intent and when they need not do so. Going back to our example of assault with intent to kill as the basis for a fellow NY murder charge. It would be very confusing for jurors to be instructed that they must find intent to kill for the underlying felony, but that they don't have to find malice for the murder. Finally, one of the rationales for the felony murder doctrine is that it deters defendants from engaging in dangerous behavior during the commission of a felony. For that rationale to apply, the underlying felony must be one that can be performed violently or nonviolently. For example, a theft can be performed with or without the threat of force. However, if the underlying felony, by definition, always involves the threat to human life, 
It is absurd to speak of a doctrine that coerces the defendant into committing that felony in a safe manner. There are several cases that illustrate the operation of the independent felony doctrine. Consider, for example, People v. Smith, 678b.d886, California 1984. In Smith, the defendant was charged with felony murder based on the underlying felony of child abuse. The court held that the felony murder doctrine did not apply because the underlying felony required that the jury determine whether the defendant acted under circumstances or conditions likely to produce a great bodily harm or death. At 10. 4. In other words, the prosecution was already required to prove that the defendant acted with malice. In such a case, the shortcut of the felony murder doctrine does not really have a role. Another famous case is People v. Ireland, 450 p.d. 580, 1969. In Ireland, the defendant faced felony murder for the death of his wife. The prosecutor tried to use the felony of assault with a deadly weapon to support the application of the felony murder doctrine. The California Supreme Court rejected this approach. It held that the underlying felony of assault with a deadly weapon was just a step toward killing the victim and therefore merged with the homicide charge. Prosecutors did not meet the requirement of showing an independent felony supporting the felony murder charge. Over the years, the courts have recognized certain felonies as qualifying as independent felonies for the felony murder doctrine. In most jurisdictions, robbery, burglary, kidnapping, rape, arson, and lewd conduct with a minor qualify as independent felonies. However, not all burglaries may qualify. For example, if a burglary is based on an unlawful entry with intent to kill or assault, that burglary felony may not qualify because it requires proof of malice. Question 3. Poison pill. Jeanette is charged with felony murder for the death of her husband. The underlying felony for the felony murder charge is the charge of poisoning. It seems that Jeanette was caught lacing her husband's dinner with arsenic. Poisoning is defined as willfully administering toxic substance to another person with the purpose of causing grave illness or death. In those jurisdictions that require that the felony supporting a felony murder doctrine be an independent felony, Jeanette is likely to be a not charged with felony murder because poisoning is an independent felony, b not charged with felony murder because only burglary, robbery, rape, kidnapping, and mayhem may serve as the basis for a felony murder, c not charged with felony murder because poisoning is not an independent felony. D. Charged with felony murder. Analysis. The issue raised by this question is whether the underlying felony of poisoning is sufficiently independent to qualify for the felony murder doctrine. For two reasons, the answer to that question must be no. First. It is fairly clear from the facts of this problem that the poisoning of the husband was just a step toward killing him. There really was no separate purpose for the felony. Second, the elements for the crime of poisoning require that the prosecution prove malice. There can be no conviction for poisoning unless Jeanette had the purpose of causing her husband to become gravely ill or die. It would be extraordinarily confusing to instruct the jury that they need not find malice for murder.
when the jury must find malice anyway for the underlying felony charge. With these basic considerations in mind, let's examine the possible answers. Is wrong because if a felony is an independent felony, it qualifies for the felony murder doctrine and Jeanette would be charged with felony murder, not exempt from it? Moreover, for the reasons we just reviewed, it is apparent that the felony of poisoning is not independent. Therefore, is wrong on both the facts and the law. B is also wrong. Although the felonies listed in that answer will routinely qualify for the felony murder doctrine, they are not the only felonies that qualify. The list of felonies that qualify for felony murder varies by jurisdiction. If you are presented with a felony not routinely used for felony murder cases, it is important that you understand how each of the possible limitations works and not automatically assume the felony does or does not qualify. Now, you are faced with a real choice, C or D? Is poisoning, especially in the circumstances of this case, really an independent felony? Quite clearly, it is not. Poisoning was just the means that Jeanette intentionally took to kill her husband. If the prosecutors can prove poisoning, they don't really need the shortcut of felony murder and it would be very confusing to instruct the jurors that they need not decide whether Jeanette acted in gross disregard for human life. Therefore, C is the correct answer. Jeanette will not be charged with felony murder because the felony of poisoning is not independent. Rather it merges into the crime of murder. D is incorrect. D. Application of felony murder doctrine, during the commission of the felony. Even if there is a qualifying felony to trigger the felony murder doctrine, courts will not apply the felony murder rule unless the charged death occurred during the commission of the felony. In making this determination, the circumstances of the killing must actually satisfy two conditions. It was sufficiently temporally and geographically related to the commission of the felony, and the felonious conduct was the cause of the death. Some courts refer to this as the res gesti rule. As to the first requirement, it is important when the killing occurred. For example, imagine that some bank robbers robbed a bank, successfully fled, and, after getting home and counting their loot, drove to a local bar to sell Everett. While they are driving to the bar, they accidentally hit a pedestrian. Would the felony murder rule apply? Probably not. By the time the felons hit the pedestrian, the felony had concluded. Instead of being guilty of murder, the felons would likely face a charge of manslaughter. However, what if the bank robbers have robbed a bank and while they are speeding away to avoid getting caught, they accidentally hit a pedestrian? In that situation, the felony has not yet been completed and the felony murder rule would apply. Obviously, the key question is, when do felonies begin and end? Ordinarily, a felony begins with the preparations for the crime and does not end until the defendants are in custody or have reached a position of temporary safety. See People v. Lopez, 116 California App, 3D 882. 1981, People v. Gladman, 41 N.Y.2D 124, 1976, People v. Salas, 500 P.D 7, 15, California 1972. Therefore, if one of the bank robbers, in cleaning her weapon to ready it to rob the bank, 
accidentally causes it a discharge and the bullet hits a passerby, the robbers would be guilty of murder. Likewise, if the robbers cause a customer to have a heart attack when they use her as a shield while escaping from the bank, the felony murder rule would still be in play. However, if the victim runs into the robber the next day, screams with fear, and dies of a heart attack, the felony murder probably would not apply. Try this next question that focuses on when a killing is during the commission of a felony. Question 4. Cloudy Skies Myra and Margot have plans to kidnap a wealthy businessman, Douglas, and hold him for ransom. After his business closes, Myra and Margot force Douglas into the trunk of their car. They drive him to a remote location and call his wife. Myra and Margot tell his wife, Lori, to leave $100,000 for them at a designated storage locker, and not to call the police. Lori complies. Douglas is then released and returns home. About a week later, Douglas is so stressed about his ordeal that he has a heart attack and dies. Myra and Margot are apprehended a week thereafter. If Myra and Margot are charged with felony murder, they will most likely a be convicted because they kidnapped Douglas and caused his stress. b be convicted because they acted with gross recklessness when they kidnapped Douglas. c be acquitted because Douglas was never in danger. d be acquitted because Douglas's death did not occur during the commission of a felony. Analysis Myra and Margot are clearly in trouble for kidnapping, but they may escape prosecution for murder because their felony was complete by the time of Douglas's death. In looking at the options, it is wrong because the kidnapping was over, even though the victim continues to experience stress from the ordeal. And the victim suffered his heart attack during the actual kidnapping, Myra and Margot would be guilty of murder. However, because he had returned to safety and Myra and Margot had completed the kidnapping, the felony murder rule would no longer apply. B is also wrong because gross recklessness has nothing to do with the felony murder rule. Remember that the felony murder rule serves as a substitute for the traditional intent requirements for malice. C is wrong because it is factually incorrect to state that Douglas was never in danger. In fact, kidnapping is almost always considered a dangerous felony. Sometimes, the most obvious answer is the correct one. That is the case here. D is the correct answer because the death did not occur during the commission of the felony. E. Felony murder causation issues. In addition to requiring that the felony be linked by time and location to the victim's death, there is also a requirement that the felonious conduct be the cause of the victim's death, as Chapter 7 explained. Causation is shorthand for the determination of whether there was enough of a relationship between the defendant's actions and the harm that resulted such that the defendant should be held responsible. In the felony murder situation, the issue is whether the felonious conduct was sufficiently related to the death that occurred to hold the felons responsible. As some courts put it, was the death in further ants of the felony? To determine whether the felony was the cause of the death, courts look at several issues. Who did the killing? Who was killed? Are there any other facts that indicate the killing was not in furtherance of the underlying felony? 1. Who did the killing? If the death was caused directly by a felon, courts ordinarily have little trouble finding that the felonious conduct was the cause of the victim's death. For example, 
if three robbers enter a jewelry store and one felon shoots the store owner, the felony murder rule would hold all coal felons responsible for the victim's murder. However, problems arise when the killing is committed by an unfelon. For example, what if three robbers enter a jewelry store and the owner, meaning to shoot a coal felon out of self-defense, accidentally kills another customer in the store? Who is responsible, the felons or the store owner? To answer this question, courts apply one of two theories, the agency theory and the proximate cause theory. A majority of jurisdictions apply the agency theory of felony murder. Under this theory, a felon is only responsible for the death of a victim if that death was caused directly by one of the felons. If a third party causes the death, the felons are not responsible. For example, assume that three robbers enter a store. Robber 1 shoots the store owner. Under the agency theory, each felon is an agent of his co-felon so all three felons are responsible for the store owner's murder. However, if instead of a felon shooting the store owner, the felon instead uses the store owner as a human shield and the police accidentally shoot the store owner during a gun battle, the felons are not guilty of felony murder because the death did not occur at the hand of one of the felons. A majority of courts follow the agency approach of felony murder. The proximate cause theory is an alternative approach to determining whether the felony murder doctrine should apply. Under this theory, a felon is responsible for any death that occurs during the felony regardless of whether the felon directly caused the death so long as the death was sufficiently related to the felon's conduct. This theory was originally created to deal with a Shield cases in which innocent victims would be killed by police officers during gun battles with the felons. See, for example, Taylor v. State, 55 SW 961, X, CT, App, 1900, Geaton v. State, 57 SW 1125, X, CT, App, 1900, in such cases, even though the felon's bullet did not kill the victim, the felon is still responsible for felony murder because the felon's conduct precipitated the death. There is no set rule identifying exactly when the killing is sufficiently related to the felonious conduct for the defendants to be guilty under the proximate cause theory. Each case depends on its facts. Some courts have described proximate cause thus. When a felon's attempts to commit a forcible felony set in motion the chain of events which were or should have been within his contemplation when the motion was initiated, he should be held responsible for any death which by direct and almost inevitable consequence results from the unidal criminal act. See People v. Lowry, 687 N.T.D. 973, 976, Hill. 1997. The proximate cause theory had been extended to situations beyond the shield cases. For example, when police officers arrive at a crime scene and the felons begin a gun battle, if one police officer accidentally kills another police officer, the felony murder doctrine may apply because the death proximately resulted from the unlawful activity. See Commonwealth v. Almeida, 68A.D. 595, Par. 1949. 2. Who was killed? 
in addition to limiting the felony murder rule by who did the killing or whether the death was proximately related to the felony. Some courts do not apply the rule when the victim is a cold felony not an innocent person. See Commonwealth v. Redline, 137A.2D472, Part 1958, Felony murder rule did not apply in proximate cause jurisdiction when police officer killed a co-felon. There are several rationales for this limitation on the application of the felony murder rule. Felons are not responsible for the death of a co-felon because the killing is viewed as justifiable. Co-felons' lives are valued less than those of innocent victims. It is difficult to understand how the death of a co-felon would be in furtherance of apostrophe the felony, and felons assume the risk of dying when they participate in a felony. Although controversial, this exception to the felony murder rule still survives in many jurisdictions. 3. Did it further the felony? There is no requirement that the coal felons intend that their victim's death further the felony, but courts may relieve coal felons of responsibility for unanticipated actions by a fellow felon that are not in furtherance of the common purpose of their felony. For example, assume that felons decide to rob a bank. While inside the bank, one of the felons decides to rape one of the customers and then kills her. The other felons could argue that they are not responsible because the death occurred during a separate felony. Some courts use this limitation as a further safety valve to acquit coal felons of murder if one felon's actions are so unpredictable and outside the common purpose of the felony that the coal felons should not be held responsible. See, for example, United States v. Highline, 490F.D725, D.C. Sir. 1973, Cole Felon stabbed rape victim when she slapped him, other rapists may not be responsible for murder. It is time to test your understanding of this last category of restrictions on the application of the felony murder rule. Remember, the question is ultimately whether the death occurred during the course and in furtherance of apostrophe the felony. Try your hand at the next problem. Question 5. The botched arson. Manny, Moe, and Jack decide to burn down Jack's dilapidated warehouse to collect the insurance proceeds. At the time they plan to burn it down, they don't realize that a homeless persons, Lou and Larry, have taken shelter in the warehouse. Manny, Moe, and Jack set the warehouse on fire and the structure starts to burn. Firefighters and police respond to an emergency call about the fire. Lou perishes in the fire. However, Larry and Jack are killed when the police accidentally shoot them during their gun battle to apprehend Manny and Mo at the scene. In this jurisdiction, felony murder only applies for the death of innocent persons. If Manny and Mo are charged with the deaths of Lou, Larry, and Jack, which of the following is true? A. In an agency jurisdiction, they are automatically guilty of felony murder for the deaths of all three victims. B. In an agency jurisdiction, they are automatically guilty of the felony murder of Lou and Larry. C. In approximate cause jurisdiction, they are automatically guilty of felony murder of all three victims. D. In approximate cause jurisdiction, they are automatically guilty of the felony murder of Lou only. E. None of the above. Analysis. 
This question is a little tricky because you have to remember two sets of limitations on the felony murder rule. First, you must make sure you understand how the agency and proximate cause theories apply. Second, you must keep in mind the limitation for deaths of co-felons. With these principles in mind, let's look at the various options. Is clearly incorrect because the agency theory only applies when a victim dies at the hands of a co-felon. Manny and Mo may be guilty of the felony murder of Lou because they set the fire, but the direct causes of the deaths of Larry and Jack were the police shootings. Thus, under the agency theory, Manny and Mo are not responsible for those deaths. Note, under the agency theory, it doesn't matter whether Manny or Mo set the fire. They are responsible for the acts of each co-conspirator. B is also incorrect. Some students might be tempted to select this answer because both Lou and Larry are innocent victims in the killings and not coal felons. However, the problem remains that the police shot Larry. He was not directly killed by one of the coal felons. At this point, you might be tempted to jump at C as a correct answer. After all, the proximate cause theory expands culpability to killings that are related to, but not necessarily the direct result of, the felon's actions. However, one of the victims is not an innocent person. Therefore, under the limitation of who is killed, during the felony, the defendants are not guilty of Jack's death. C is also incorrect. How about D? This answer is also incorrect because it is too limited. Under the proximate cause theory, the defendants are at least guilty of both innocent persons' deaths, not just loose death. Therefore, the correct answer for this problem is the dreaded E, none of the above. You will only arrive at this answer if you carefully evaluate each possible response for all the rules you have learned about felony murder. And you are not through yet. There is one more twist on the during the course of an infurtherance of the felony that must be mastered. F. Provocative Act Doctrine As noted in the prior section, in agency jurisdictions, a felon ordinarily is not responsible for a victim's death unless it was directly caused by one of the co-felons. If the death is at the hands of a third party, felony murder does not apply. However, even in an agency jurisdiction, there may be another doctrine that imposes culpability on the co-felons for deaths at the hands of a third party. It is known as the Provocative Act Doctrine. It is often the way around the limitations of the agency theory. Consider the situation in which felons rob a store and trigger a gun battle with the store owner. The store owner then kills an innocent customer in the store. Under the agency theory, the felons would not be responsible for that death. However, there is a separate theory, apart from felony murder by which the felons may be responsible. That theory is the Provocative Act Doctrine, which provides that if the actions of a felon create an atmosphere of malice that provokes a third party into committing the killing, the felons are guilty of murder. The doctrine is technically not a felony murder principle because there is an actual finding of malice created by the coal felon's provocative behavior. The Provocative Act Doctrine was recognized in the famous case of Taylor v. Superior Court. 477p.2d131, California 1970. In that case, defendant Taylor acted as the getaway driver in a robbery. While Taylor waited in the car, his coal felons tried to rob a liquor store. 
After they brandished their guns and repeatedly threatened the victim owners, the victim owners shot and killed one of the robbers. Taylor was charged with his co-felon's murder. Because the jurisdiction had adopted the agency theory of felony murder and someone other than one of the felons killed the co-felon, the court had to devise another theory to create liability. Notwithstanding conflicting case law, see People v. Washington. 60 to California to D777, 400 to P.D130, 1965, the court held that Taylor was responsible because his co-felon's provocative conduct, as shown by aggressive actions, caused the death. Too. Sometimes, the provocative act doctrine is referred to as vicarious liability because co-felons are responsible for the atmosphere of malice created by one of their co-felons that results in the death of another person. You'll see how this works in the next question. 2. Later, the holding in Taylor was overruled by People v. Antic, 15 California 3D 79, 539 P.D 43, 1975 because the death of the co-felon who created the atmosphere of malice was viewed as a suicide, not a homicide. The decision of whether to apply the provocative act doctrine when the co-felon has provoked his own killing varies by jurisdiction. Question 6. Running from the law. Mike and Ben, members of the Clips gang, steal a car while an innocent passenger is in the backseat of the car. During the carjacking, Ben and Mike are spotted by the police. Mike starts shooting at the police as Ben tries to speed away. The police shoot back. During the chase, the police accidentally shoot the passenger in the back seat of the car. Mike and Ben are charged with murder. Assume that the case is charged in a jurisdiction that uses the agency theory of felony murder. Are Mike and Ben guilty of murder? A. Yes, because of the felony murder doctrine. B. Yes because of the provocative act doctrine. C. No, because the police shot the victim. D. No, because only Mike acted with malice. E. None of the above. Analysis. As with many questions, the best clue for your answer is in the question itself. When the question states that you are to assume you are in an agency jurisdiction, you should automatically be thinking of the limitations of the agency doctrine approach and ways around it. What that means, of course, is that under the felony murder rule, felons are only responsible for deaths they directly cause, not deaths caused by third parties. To hold the felons guilty of murder for deaths caused at the hands of third parties, prosecutors have to show malice by using the provocative act doctrine is wrong because the felony murder rule does not apply because it was not one of the felons who shot the victim. In an agency jurisdiction, in order for the felony murder rule to apply, the death must be caused directly by one of the coal felons. B, however, appears to be correct. When Mike started shooting at the police, he created an atmosphere of malice that led to the victim's death. This is the scenario anticipated by the provocative act doctrine. Just to be safe, let's check the other answers to see how they hold up. C is wrong because it assumes there is no way to hold the defendants responsible for shootings by the police. There is such a way. It is the provocative act doctrine. Therefore, for all the reasons B is correct, C is the wrong answer. D is wrong, but for a different reason, 
Even though we are not applying the felony murder doctrine, it doesn't mean that felons are not responsible for the acts of their co-felons. As we see in Chapter 14, there is accomplice liability even without the felony murder rule. Therefore, both Ben and Mike are responsible for the murder, even though it was only Mike whose shooting created the atmosphere of malice that led to the victim's death. He is wrong because there is a correct answer. The answer is B for the Rea sons noted above. Before we move on to another doctrine in this chapter, here is a chart that may help you organize your analysis of felony murder problems. Felony Murder and Provocative Act Doctrines Basic Rule 4 Felony Murder Death During Felony Substitutes for Proof of Malice Limitations for Felony Murder Doctrine 1. Inherently Dangerous Felony 2. Independent Felony 3. In Furtherance of Felony A. Duration of Felony B. Who Caused Death I. Agency Theory 2. Proximate Cause Theory C. Who Was Killed I. Does that jurisdiction apply felony murder for death of a co-felon? D. Was the killing outside the scope of the felony? Provocative Act Slash Vicarious Liability Doctrine Provocative Acts of One Felon Create Malice for All Co-Felons G. Model Penal Code Approach to Felony Murder the drafters of the model penal code oppose the felony murder principle because it does not link a defendant's culpability to her intent. However, they did not abolish the rule altogether. Rather, model penal code $110.20 provides that if a death occurs during the commission of certain listed felonies, there is a presumption that the defendant acted with recklessness and extreme indifference to human life. The listed felonies include engaging in or being an accomplice in the commission of, an attempt to commit, or flight after committing or attempting to commit robbery, rape, deviate sexual intercourse by threat of force, arson, burglary, kidnapping, and felonious escape. Therefore, under the Model Penal Code, there is a presumption that a death that occurs during a felony meets the standards for murder, but the defense can rebut that presumption. Under the common law, once a death occurs during a felony, it is automatically murder. In this next question, try to spot the difference between how felony murder would work under the model penal code approach and the common law approach we studied earlier in this chapter. Question 7. Late Night Heist Walter breaks into Felipe's home late at night to steal his priceless painting. He does not bring a weapon because he does not want to hurt anyone. He just wants the painting. Hearing his window break, Felipe gets up to investigate. Although it is clear that Walter is not carrying a weapon, Felipe is so startled when he sees Walter that he has a heart attack and dies. Walter is charged with murder. He is most likely a guilty under the common law and model penal code approaches to felony murder. b not guilty under the common law approach to felony murder, but guilty under the model penal code approach. C. Not guilty under the model penal code approach to felony murder, but guilty under the common law approach. D. Not guilty under both the model penal code and common law. Approaches to felony murder. Analysis. This question illustrates why the common law approach to felony murder is considered to be harsher than the model penal code approach. Under the common law approach. 
assuming that burglary is classified as an inherently dangerous felony, which it often is, Walter would be automatically guilty of murder. However, under the model penal code approach, Walter would be allowed to rebut the presumption of extreme indifference by presenting evidence that he intentionally did not carry a weapon because he did not want to hurt anyone. Accordingly, is wrong because this is a situation in which Walter may be able to rebut the presumption against him. If he can, he is not guilty of felony murder. Also, technically, the model penal code does not have felony murder. It only has murder, which is proven through a presumption. He is wrong because the common law would impose automatic culpability. This would be a classic example of the reach of the felony murder rule. The choices between C and D. C is the best answer. There is reason to believe that Walter could rebut the presumption against him under the model penal code approach. However, it is very unlikely that he could escape culpability under the common law approach. H. Unlawful Act, Misdemeanor Manslaughter Doctrine. Just as the felony murder rule substitutes for proving intent in a murder case, the misdemeanor manslaughter, or unlawful act, doctrine may be used as a substitute for proving the necessary mens rea for an involuntary manslaughter. Charge. In many ways, it is analogous to the felony murder rule. Sometimes, it is called the misdemeanor manslaughter rule. Other jurisdictions refer to it as the unlawful act doctrine. The basic rule is that unintentional killings committed during an unlawful act, not amounting to a felony, automatically constitute manslaughter. The commission of the unlawful act demonstrates that the defendant acted without decaution or circumspection. For example, assume the defendant is charged with manslaughter when her Rottweilers kill a passing jogger. The defendant violated a safety ordinance requiring that the dogs be restrained at all times. Because the defendant violated this ordinance, she is automatically guilty of manslaughter. See State v. Powell, 426 S.E.D91, NC App, 1993. Like the felony murder rule, jurisdictions are often uncomfortable with imposing automatic liability on defendants for accidental deaths. Accordingly, the scope of the doctrine is often limited in some manner so that only violations that are likely to lead to serious harms trigger the doctrine. Jurisdictions can choose a variety of limitations to ensure that the unlawful act doctrine is used properly. Some courts limit the application of the doctrine by requiring that the misdemeanor or unlawful act be inherently dangerous. Like the inherently dangerous requirement for felonies qualifying for felony murder. This limitation helps ensure that defendants are only guilty of manslaughter in those situations in which it is most likely they did act with criminal negligence. Other jurisdictions try to accomplish the same goal by requiring that the misdemeanor be malum in se, wrong in itself. In other words, it must be the type of violation that the law prohibits because the conduct is inherently wrong and could lead to serious harm. If the violation only has a regulatory purpose and is not designed to protect the safety of others, it is often called malum prohibitum and cannot trigger the misdemeanor manslaughter rule. For example, if a defendant speeds down a street with her car and accidentally hits a child who has darted into the street, that defendant may be guilty of misdemeanor manslaughter because a speeding violation is malum in se. However, 
if that same driver is driving at a lawful speed, but with an expired driver's license, this technical violation is nothing more than malum prohibitum and would not trigger the misdemeanor manslaughter doctrine. See, for example, Commonwealth v. Williams, 133 Pascals. Super. 104, 1A.D 812, 1938. Finally, some jurisdictions simply state that the violation must be the proximate cause of the victim's death. Once again, this limitation is designed to require that there be some significant connection between the type of violation the defendant committed and the death that occurred. This limitation precluded the application of the misdemeanor manslaughter doctrine in the case of Todd v. State, 594 so. to D. 802, Florida 1992. In Todd, the defendant stole $110 from a church collection plate and took off in his car. He was pursued by several congregants. One of these congregants had a heart attack during the chase, lost control of his vehicle, and died. The defendant was charged with manslaughter on the theory that the victim's death was caused by defendant's petty theft. The court dismissed the indictment because the petty theft did not encompass the kind of direct foreseeable risk of physical harm that should trigger the misdemeanor manslaughter doctrine. If this doctrine seems easier than the felony murder rule, it is. In part, this is because you have already learned the basic principles from the felony murder rule. In part, it is because the sole focus of the limitations is on whether the unlawful act was sufficiently bad and related to the harm caused to hold the defendant responsible for manslaughter. Question 8 dune buggy tragedy. Carol loves to race her dune buggy through the desert. She has been doing so for many years. Recently, state officials passed a law stating, it is a violation of the law to drive an off-road vehicle in the desert without a permit. Violation of this law is punishable by six months in jail. Gara fails to obtain a permit, but continues to race her dune buggy. One day, as she drives over a sand dune, she accidentally plows into a hiker and kills him. Which of the following is true? A. Gara's guilty of felony murder because her criminal violation led directly to the death of another person. B. Gara's guilty of misdemeanor manslaughter if driving a dune buggy without a permit is inherently dangerous. C. Gara's not guilty of manslaughter because driving a dune buggy is a malum in se. Regulatory offense? D. Gara is not guilty of manslaughter because she did not intend to hit her victim. Analysis. This problem should be fairly easy if you read through the answers carefully. Is wrong because there is no underlying felony to trigger the felony murder doctrine. The first step you must take in deciding whether to apply either the felony murder rule or the misdemeanor manslaughter doctrine is to determine the nature of the underlying offense. In this problem, you are told that the maximum penalty is six months in jail. Felonies ordinarily require more than a year in jail. Accordingly, the felony murder doctrine would not apply in this scenario. If anything, it is a candidate for the misdemeanor manslaughter or unlawful act doctrine. B seems correct because it identifies the key issue in the problem, is dune buggying without a permit inherently dangerous? Ordinarily. 
simply driving without a permit is considered a regulatory offense. However, if the reason for acquiring a permit is to ensure safety during an activity, the Unlawful Act doctrine may apply. Luckily, it becomes quite clear after examining C and D that B is the best answer. C is almost nonsensical. Malum prohibitum, not malum in se, is the phrase used to describe regulatory offenses. C confuses the two principles and therefore is an incorrect answer. Likewise, D is wrong because it misses completely the standard for involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter does not require that the defendant intend to harm her victim. Thus, the best answer is B. I. The closer, felony murder and the death penalty. There is rarely much inquiry about application of the unlawful act doctrine. By contrast, the felony murder rule continues to come under constant criticism. Nonetheless, not only does it still exist in the United States, but it also can be the basis for a death penalty murder conviction. In Tyson v. Arizona, 481 U.S. 137, 1987, the Supreme Court held that the felony murder doctrine can be used in a death penalty case as long as the prosecution demonstrates the defendant's major participation in the felony committed, combined with reckless indifference to human life. In essence, the court held that the felony murder doctrine can establish the defendant's responsibility for the murder, but before the death penalty is imposed, there should also be some further indication by the defendant's participation and reckless indifference to human life that the defendant did indeed act with malice. In effect, there is a heightened felony murder standard before the death penalty may be constitutionally imposed. The Tyson case provides an excellent review of the death penalty. The closer question tests not only your understanding of the general felony murder rule, but also its application in a death penalty case. Question 9. Bad Boys. The Tyson family is a model family that is, a model family for antisocial and criminal behavior. The father, Gary Tyson, was sentenced to life imprisonment for trying to kill a guard during an earlier prison break. Tyson's wife, with their three sons, Donald, Ricky, and Raymond, then planned another escape for Gary Tyson and his cellmate, Randy Greenwald. Using an ice chest, they smuggled weapons into the prison and helped Tyson escape. When their getaway car broke down, the group of men flagged down a passing motorist to steal his car. Trying to be good Samaritans, John Leon and his young family stopped. The Tysons commandeered the Leon car and drove them into the desert. There, Gary Tyson ordered his sons to get some water for him. While the boys were getting the water, they heard John Leon beg for his life. Then they heard shots. Gary Tyson and Randy Greenewald had Mercy Leslie gun down the entire family. Gary Tyson escaped into the desert where he subsequently died of exposure, and Donald Tyson was killed in a shootout with the police. Randy Greenewald, Raymond Tyson, and Ricky Tyson were apprehended by the police. Which of the following is correct? A. In all jurisdictions, Raymond Tyson, Ricky Tyson, and Randy Greenewald are responsible for the death of their co-felon, Gary Tisson. B. Raymond and Ricky Tisson are not guilty of murder because they were not present when the victims were shot. C. 
If Raymond and Ricky Tyson acted with reckless indifference toward Leon and his family while the Tysons participated in the Leon kidnapping and their father's escape, they could face the death penalty. D. Only Gary Tyson and Randy Green of Walt are guilty of a capital offense? Since they were the only felons who killed with premeditation. Analysis. The Tyson case is truly horrifying. An innocent family was shot down in the desert when they tried to do a good deed. The case demonstrates the operation of the felony murder rule, as well as whether coal felons can face the death penalty, even if they were not the trigger men. Is wrong because in many jurisdictions, coal felons are not responsible for the death of a co-felon because that death is viewed as justifiable. Thus, while the surviving felons may all be responsible for the death of an innocent third party, it is not generally true that they are guilty of the death of one of their co-felons. B is also wrong because it ignores the felony murder rule. Under the felony murder rule, it does not matter whether the defendants were actual ally present when the victims were killed. As coal felons, they are nonetheless responsible for the victims' deaths. Likewise, D is a wrong answer. First-degree felony murder, including felony murder that qualifies for the death penalty does not necessarily require that all the felons act with premeditation as to the victim's deaths. Rather, their intent to commit the felony substitutes for the malice and premeditation use of ally are required for the highest level of murder. That leaves us with C. While it is certainly controversial as to whether a defendant who does not order a murder or pull the trigger himself should face the death penalty for a killing by one of his co-felons. The law permits this ultimate sanction if the facts demonstrate the defendant's major participation in a felony, combined with reckless indifference for human life. Citizen v. Arizona, 481 U.S. 137, 158, 1987. Though they were ultimately spared from execution, Ricky and Raymond Tyson could be tried for a capital offense. Levinson's Picks 1. Accidental Murder C 2. Shotgun Mama D 3. Poison Pill C 4. Cloudy Skies D 5. The Botched Arson E 6. Running from the Law B 7. Late Night Heist C 8. Dune Buggy Tragedy B 9. Bad Boys C